episode 134 of Mitch Unfiltered. Subscribe, listen, rate, and review us. But wait to review us because we have a, a very special show. We want you to become a Mitch Unfiltered patron, too. For $5 a month, you get the extra bonus content of Mitch Unfiltered. All you got to do is go to MitchUnfiltered.com and become a patron. Why is episode 134 so very special? Well, hotshot Scott Soden is nowhere to be found. He's in like Idaho at a youth basketball tournament. So I had to go out and get a very special guest co-host, which I've done. Now, if he's good, we'll sign him up and we'll tell hotshot never to come back again. A few weeks ago, I was asked by a 15-year-old Mercer Island High School freshman. Right, 15, Dylan? Yes, is that right? 15. You 15. got it right. A Mercer Island High School freshman to do an interview with him. Was I doing it for your podcast? Was I doing it for your radio show? Was I doing it for class? What was I doing it for, Dylan? You were doing it for my radio show as well. But uh, the main uh, point was that it was an assignment to get uh, somebody that you're looking into for your dream career to interview. So, I yes, see. I did upload it on my show because I loved it so much and I felt that my listeners wanted to hear it. Okay. So, yeah, so I did both those things. And how'd that go for you? Did you enjoy interviewing me or no? Yes, I did. Obviously, I'd be very, I was very nervous. Um, <laughs> so I, I've done an interview before uh, that was pretty big as well for me. Uh, there's a yeah. cy- professional cyclist named Phil Guyman who I interviewed. Yeah. Um, he has like 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. So he's pretty big. So that was my first like really nervous interview. But I'm I'm getting the I'm getting a little bit of the hang of it. I've gotten some feedback from my dad, so I'm, I'm trying to be a better interviewer. Uh, so yeah. Well, let me tell you how impressed I was with 15-year-old Mercer Island High School freshman Dylan Shobe. I was so impressed that I invited him to be my celebrity co-host for episode 134. And I want you to know, Dylan, before we begin, this is the segment that we just get everything out in the open so everybody knows the deal, okay? I want you to know that you are my first choice, my very first choice for celebrity co-host, as opposed to what you told me at the beginning of our interview with you. What did you tell me when I, when I did the interview with you a couple of weeks ago? All right, all right. So... <laughs> I, I've made this ma- mistake before, and I actually did this with Phil, the, the other the other guy I interviewed. Um, I said uh, that I've been I was reaching out to people that I wanted to interview. None of them were really responding, and then you know I got to you because you know you suck so much. Uh, you're the last guy I wanted to interview, and I'd like to get the context okay. out of the out okay. of the way here. Okay. So okay. Okay. I like this uh, career you have going. I like like the whole broadcasting thing, and I'm new to it. I haven't really listened. I have not like huge on anyone on SportsCenter, I'm not like, oh my God, I'm a huge Scott Van Pelt fan. Or like, I want to reach out to this person other than like, maybe like Chris Collinsworth. That's pretty much it. That's as far as I get. So I was kind of looking on Twitter. As soon as you hit this person, I hit like Mike Salk or like somebody. And then it's like suggested accounts and yours popped up. And I was like, oh, this guy looks really cool. He's got a (laughs) a big following. He's got everything on like a resume that you could ever imagine so this guy looks very cool okay i'm honored yeah okay but you had no idea who i even i mean how could you even know who i am at 15 i mean i read a little about you and i was like (laughs) sounds awesome and i was like running short on time i was like i don't know who i'm gonna get i I gotta get somebody right for class (laughs) exactly well I told you my first bit of advice to you was never tell an interviewee, as you told me, that uh, 
he or she is your your sixth or seventh or tenth choice. Don't tell. You know me. what? I might make that my thing now. I might actually <laughs> say that on purpose to you know be be an honest guy. Uh-uh. May make that my tradition for uh, interviewing. It may go wrong in some in some spots. Well, for sure. well, we are thrilled to have you here on episode one thirty four. I was so impressed by you reaching out and the questions that you asked and maybe you can ask some of those again for our audience or any questions that you didn't get to i think people would be interested to hear what a 15 year old has to ask mitch the guy that he found on on twitter or wherever you found me but i'm thrilled to have you as our co-host on episode 134 it's going to be a a fun one before we begin why don't you tell people more about you dylan i only told the basics that you're a, a freshman in high school wannabe broadcaster, yes? Yes, exactly. Um, going into like college when I'm in the end of high school, I'm definitely looking into like some communications, uh, like broadcast journalism, journalism, I don't know. Uh, something in sports. I can just talk about sports for like forever and like okay. whatever I want, like exactly what you're doing. So obviously with the career interview, that's what I was aiming for. You're a guy who, you know, unfiltered, you talk about whatever you want, however long you want. It was awesome hearing a... Uh, Episode 133 with Corby Lanker. I really love that segment of the show. I mean, you had him play music for you. Like, that was was awesome. That was the first Mitch Unfiltered episode you'd ever heard, right? Uh, No, I listened to uh, the one before that or one... somewhere around there but okay. only for a little bit like I, I really went in deep for the 133 okay but anyway more to more to me I keep talking about you okay but uh I'm a of a 15 year old freshman of course at Mercer Allen High School I'm very passionate in lacrosse do you play I'm also yes I play of course yeah. um okay. yeah I'm on the Mercer Allen team I'm trying to get on varsity so that's okay. that's a big goal for me okay um, I'm also part of a uh this is kind of a hobby for me but I'm big into cycling as well uh if you if you have ever seen like when you're driving around Audi cycling team, maybe okay. they're, they're yeah. a big force in Seattle for yep. cycling. So I'm actually part of that as well. So yeah, I, I kind of just, I'm a kid. I mean, that's all I got to say. I don't you're think great. I'm insanely special, oh, I but think this is special. probably the most special thing I've done in a, <laughs> in a while. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, do you know some of the great college lacrosse programs around the country? Yes. Syracuse, huge. Stop right there. Stop right huge. there. <laughs> right what do you want there. me to stop, though? Uh, I, that's it. That's the only lacrosse program I know. When I was going to Syracuse a million years ago, way before you were born, they were great in lacrosse every single year. They either played for a national championship or won a national championship every year. Now, as the years have gone on, some other schools have come along and gotten really good. And, of course, it's spread to the West, the Midwest and the West. So it's not as easy as it was back then to win a national championship. But when I was a kid, Dylan, Syracuse was where it's at when it comes to lacrosse. Yeah, exactly. The Orange Men, they're yeah. also like some of the best uniforms. The helmets, great. Um, but uh, Duke is very huge this year, actually. If, okay. if any of your listeners follow Calls Across, which I, I bet there's somebody out there, but uh, Duke, I mean, they're rolling over teams. You know, they played High Point University. They won 27-9. to Do you like, know they who just, they play next? Um, do you know who Duke plays next? I don't. I off do. Off the top of my head. I do. Who is it? The Orange. Oh, is it really? The mighty, no way. Or, the mighty orange. In that, that's a great matchup. I mean, <laughs> I think Syracuse is good, like, up to their gold standard every year. But uh, I've just seen, like, um, Duke and 
Denver's pretty good. Yeah, um, Denver's and awesome Ivy League game. this year, surprisingly, yeah. they're um, canceled. So yeah. there's no Ivy League lacrosse, which is very interesting. All right. So I've got Dylan Shobe, 15 years old, from Mercer Island High School as my celebrity co-host in the absence of Hotshot Scott. Not only do I have Dylan, but I've got three great guest segments. I'm calling them segments, not three guests, because we've actually got five guests in three segments. Guest segment number one will be the Seahawks note table. That'll be Brady Henderson and Joe Fan of ESPN and NBC Sports Northwest. We're going to go over everything that the Seahawks have either done or not done in the first week of free agency. And I know that my celebrity guest host, Dylan Shobe, has lots to say about the Seahawks, and we'll do that in segment number one. Uh, guest segment number two, two guys who had buzzer beaters and game-winning shots in NCAA tournament basketball games in the past. The first guy's name is Ali Farokmanesh. He of uh, Northern Iowa. He beat UNLV and Kansas with last-second shots back in 2010. And then six years later, a guy from the same school of all things, Northern Iowa, named Paul Jesperson, hit a half-quarter at the buzzer against Texas to upset the Longhorns. Those two guys will both join us in segment number two of the interview uh, pieces. And then in number three, Hall of Fame boxing announcer Al Bernstein on the passing of marvelous Marvin Hagler, a guy that you don't remember because you're too young to remember that in the 1980s and 90s, the best middleweight boxer maybe of all time was a guy named marvelous Marvin Hagler, and he passed away last week at the age of 66. So we'll do segment one with Dylan... Then we'll have the three interview segments. And then what we always call the other stuff segment, we're really just going to give the reins to Dylan Shobe. It's going to be his segment to shine. You're going to be able to talk about and ask about whatever you want in our final segment of episode 134. Sound good? Awesome. Hey, Dylan, episode 134 is not possible without our partners like Zeke's Pizza, which continues to grow like a weed in the Pacific Northwest. Two new locations on the way in Bellingham, and why not? Our family had a great night at the Queen Anne location last week for our annual NCAA pool, delicious Northwest pizza, and the best craft beer to your door in minutes. Download the Zeke's Pizza app. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. This week, area restaurants are open at 50% capacity inside, and Daniel's is no different. Leshy, South Lake Union, and the top of Bellevue Place. Let's restart celebrating all those special occasions with Daniel's Broiler world-class steakhouses. If you're thinking about a new fireplace or fire pit for cozy family gathering spaces, you're crazy not to begin your search at Fireside Home Solutions. We're getting ready to add a fire pit to our backyard, and they do garage doors too. FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Jordan Flowers' team at the Kirkland office at Gill Mortgage has been saving unfiltered listeners lots of money for a few years now. Still great opportunities opportunities and numbers on refinances seven minutes is all it takes 425-250-3150 the kirkland office of guild mortgage and evergreen golf call tax advisors certified financial planners and experienced portfolio managers all working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments all under one roof evergreengk.com more than just a financial advisor evergreen 
is Everything Wealth, episode 134, without Hot Shot Scott, begins right now. Unfiltered. I think he was consistently fantastic. Yeah. He went through that stretch where he fumbled a little bit a few years ago. He didn't fumble yep. last year. When Chris Carson is on the field, I don't think he has bad games. I don't think he has bad moments. He's always good. Yep. The question is keeping him on the field. And they want to, you know, recommit to the running game. Unfiltered. The Bears and Seahawks engaged in discussions. The Bears offered this huge package. The Seahawks turned it down. And then the Bears and Seahawks decided, the two GMs said, okay, here's what we're publicly going to say. We're going to say that the Seahawks just do not want to trade Russell Wilson because that makes everybody look better. That makes the Seahawks look better in Russell Wilson's eyes, and it makes the Bears look better in Chicago Bears fans' eyes because it doesn't sound like they were cheap on their offer. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 134 is now officially underway. No hotshot Scott, ladies and gentlemen, but instead 15-year-old Dylan Shobe, Mercer Island High School, Mercer Island Islander, right? You're an yes, Islander. Islanders. Lacrosse. La Bleed Maroon. Bleed. <laughs> okay. Bleed <laughs> Maroon. White. Dylan Shobe <laughs> is our co-host. We've got lots to talk about. Now, before we get to the, the news at hand, the NCAA March Madness, my bracket's already ruined because I have Illinois winning the national championship. My, my beloved alma mater is into the Sweet 16. I'm very excited about that. And we've got Seahawks news to go over. Before we do any of that, I thought we'd spend a little of the first segment kind of going back to a week and a half ago when you did the interview with me, if there were any questions or any thoughts that you had as a result of that chat that we can go over and then we can get to the news of the day. How about that? Awesome, yeah. Yeah, yeah this question right off the bat, I, I like got lost in the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like a more of a less about you, but more about like where, like a prediction where you think the radio industry is going to go. Uh, do you believe that the podcast world is taking over radio And uh, what effects do you think radio is going to experience due to, like, this massive podcast coming into the world? I'd be interested in getting your answer to that first. As as somebody who's a lot younger than me and knows podcasts a lot more than you know radio, you know, where I come from, radio was king. But I've noticed over and over again that a lot of people are leaving radio. Mainstream radio is kind of a thing of the past. The problem that I have is, Dylan, that all of us podcasters have, is there's like a billion podcasts. There's so much competition that guys like me are getting smothered. We're getting smothered by the opposition. What do you think the answer to that question is? Yeah, I think, first of all, like radios, I don't know if this is true, but radios, it, it seems to me, all I can think about is uh, radios last thread that they're holding on by is just cars. You get in your car, you turn on the radio, you're, you're cleaning your house, you're going to go to a podcast. I don't think much people are turning on a radio on like their Sonos sound system or uh, so I honestly think at some point podcasts are going to take over. I don't know what replaces radio in cars. Like, I think cars, main thing, it's just radio. So, well, can't you uh, put a podcast on? Don't people listen to this yes, podcast? Yes, of course. Yeah. By, like, by putting it in the car. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, obviously, with Bluetooth, that was probably people also question that if that's going to take over, you know, radio. <sighs> it's tough to say, but podcast and radio i think they'll be fighting this battle but i don't know i'll flip the question on you what do you what do you I, think about I, it i i hope that radio is not a thing of the past but boy it sure feels that way 
I think advertisers where they spend their money, that's kind of the end-all, be-all. That's going to decide the future answer to all of these questions. Where are advertisers going to spend their money? And more and more, they're spending it on alternative mediums like podcasts and like web pages and like digital media. They're, they're spending less and less and less money every year, advertisers are, on regular radio. When was the last time you sat down and actually listened to the radio, Dylan? Have you, have you ever listened to the radio? I mean, like sit in my room, turn on like, you know, 95.7 The Jet or something? Yes, like, like or an AM station or a sports radio station or... I mean, I never do. Only in the cars <laughs> when I listen to radio. I mean, okay, that's just how my generation is. I think like... If How about I'm, your dad? How about your mom and dad? Do they listen to the radio? My dad is a big podcast guy. You know, he listens to, I don't know, whatever Conan's podcast is, like Conan and Friends or something. Mm-hmm. He listens to Rewatchables, which is this like movie podcast about mm-hmm. movies that you should rewatch. You know, he's a huge on podcasts and pretty loyal to like uh, a set of like five, I see. which mine being one. He's like making <laughs> up like 30% of my <laughs> listeners. But um, yeah, honestly, no, I don't sit in my room, turn on a station ever except for maybe the one that I make content for every now and then uh-huh. when my show's on or just when I'm in the car. So no, I, I listen to music when I'm alone, okay. I think, and podcasts, obviously. Okay. So no, Any chance we can get dad or mom to listen to episode 134 of Mitch Unfiltered? I've been pushing my dad because <laughs> 133, I thought it was one of the most entertaining podcast episodes I've listened to. And honestly, really? not just, I'm You're not just, just saying say, that. Yes, you are. I'm not saying that. Okay, saying- you can you can think that, but obviously, I mean, I think I think it was awesome. You so liked I'm Corby gonna, Lenker. You liked the fact that, that I That was it. awesome. Did you like him singing the Cheers song? Did you like the Cheers rendition? Yeah, I liked every song he sang, dude. And like hearing about uh, growing up in northern Idaho or wherever it was. Yeah. I Even like the stories about not singing. Like it's just um, how diverse the guests you get. Um, and what they talk about is just awesome to hear. So I think that Thank puts you your, that. put your podcast in a few steps further in different areas than others don't. I'm working to. really hard here, Dylan, to get the Shobe family to listen to Mitch Unfiltered. This is all about the show. I figure once I get your mom and dad, are there siblings? Are you? Uh, do you have siblings? Yes, I have two brothers. Yeah. I have one at the... University of Colorado at Boulder, okay. uh, who's currently working for Peloton in his uh, oh. off semester okay. uh, right now. And then my other brother is at uh, Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, which ties me to, oh. and my mom and dad also went there. So that's why I'm a huge oh. Purdue fan in March Madness. We'll oh. get to that later. I know. Don't even talk about oh. North Texas. I don't want to hear about it. Oh. But uh, yeah, that's that, I had I two Pur- brothers. I had Purdue yep. in the so final did everybody, four. I had final. Purdue in the final four. Your guest did had, say I that. Had, I had Illinois winning the national championship the and same down you, I much. go my I can just throw my bracket I can just rip it up and throw it out Dylan I was yeah I was very I was mostly annoyed at the Loyola Chicago today of course because <laughs> I had Illinois winning my only last hope is Iowa because I took them to the final I had a big 10 final because I'm a big 10 guy I was like why not we just got into March Madness but yeah, yeah. I have two brothers if that's pretty much my whole family yeah yeah Mom, dad two I'm, brothers, I'm wor- I figure as soon as I get the show family to listen to Mitch Unfiltered, I can quit. That'll be the last episode that I do. So just let me know. Once the family <laughs> listens, I'm done. Then it can become Dylan Unfiltered. So you're a big a big NCAA tournament fan. You watched a lot of it. You had fun w- watching it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, 
uh, before the tournament, I'm a huge Big Ten guy. You know, I barely watch Pac-12 basketball just because like most people will say, you know, Big Ten basketball, very physical, very exciting. I believe that with my heart. I just don't like UW. Obviously, you're not going to be watching them <laughs> because this season, you know, three and 20 yeah. something. I don't even yeah. know. Yeah, wasn't good. But, you know. <laughs> CU is like the only game I'll turn on if there's a Pac-12 game. But yeah, I'm a huge Big Ten guy, so Purdue. Yeah, and yeah, pretty yeah. much. So who'd you have? Oh. Did you do you have Purdue and Illinois um, in the national championship? I had, no, no, no. I had Illinois and Iowa, like oh. I said earlier. And who winning? But, uh, who do you have winning the whole thing? Illinois. You're done. I, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> yeah, my projection of points right now is 750 max. Oh. So I legit can like burn this whole thing. Well, let me matter. let me offer you something here, Dylan. Because I feel like I should offer you something, and that is, since your bracket is done, so you have nobody really to root for in your bracket, and your beloved Purdue Boilermakers disappointed us all, and the Big Ten and Illinois are out, and you just need you need something to hold on to. There's an 11 seed. A certain, You're gonna be mad at me. There's a certain shade of orange that I'm telling you, two weeks ago, were not even gonna be in the NCAA tournament. They were not even gonna make the field. And there's a certain shade of orange that as an 11 seed is now 1-2 and they're in the, in the Sweet 16. Come on aboard. There's room for you. There's I can split it two you. ways. I can split the buffs and I can split oh, the orange. Oh, that's right. Man. I forgot about the buffs. Yep, right. the buffs. The, that's, the buffs are still yeah. there. Yeah. And okay. I'm, I'll still tease my dad for picking Georgetown over the buffs. I was like, why'd you do that? That's not a 12-5. That's going to happen. They made the Pac-12 championship. Not happening. Uh, but you're going to be mad at me for this reason because I picked San Diego State to beat Syracuse I'm in the first round. I'm not which mad at I didn't know anything about Syracuse. So they're do, they're playing very well right now. Beat West Virginia by yeah. three. Yeah. I mean they were they were leading the charge in that game. Came out hard. Uh, now they're in you know the Sweet 16. Yeah. So absolutely. So you they could, could be Loyola that. Chicago versus Syracuse in, in the, the in the regional final. Elite right? eight. Yeah. yeah. You never exactly. You never quite know. And the NCAA kind of captured our interest in the last few days. But over the last week, I happen to know that you're a big Seahawks guy. You're a big football fan, as we all are. I'm a huge football guy, but I'll correct that. I'm not huge on the Seahawks. Oh. I've, in oh. fact. The, oh. Your listeners will get very mad at this. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I will admit in the twenty wait what was it yeah twenty fifteen Super Bowl I rooted for the Patriots. Who? <laughs> I know, and I was happy when they intercepted on the goal line. Malcolm Butler. You were okay. You I know. Were, I don't make eight, any you, sense. You were I, nine years old. Don't. I know exactly. And I no. Here's the thing with me is that every time I would go to school, I, all I would hear was this chatter, like Seahawks, 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 because sure. obviously coming off championship season yeah. and even yeah. before that, yeah. people would not stop talking about Seahawks That to the point where I would sit down and see them on the TV. I would not root for them because I was tired of hearing that. It's like, it's interesting how much like, you hear about something that it drives you away from that instead of like the mere exposure effect you know you see things more you hear about things more you tend to like them but it, it worked opposite and i was very surprised now looking at it that i didn't like the seahawks and i should have because right now they kind of have a, a tough off season trying to work into like what they can get for a draft pick and they right. have like no draft picks no so. draft choices yeah exactly so so who do you I, root for dylan who do you root for now do you still root for the patriots is that your team no no no, no. it was no. just that one season How i don't about know now? why i i feel bad for rooting against the no Seahawks don't there. feel badly it's it's okay <laughs> who do you root for now though who do you want to win you, you don't have a favorite team you don't, don't care. You don't really I, care. I really don't have a favorite okay, team. That's okay. I like the Seahawks, but I'm not a fan. I don't consider myself a fan. Okay. I've just never okay. been. But you follow so. the game. You follow the sport. I do follow the and game. And we should very tell closely. everybody that in the last week, at least at the time of our recording here, 
the Seahawks got Chris Carson back, and we're going to talk yeah, all about this with our – we call it the Seahawks note table, Dylan, because for 25 years on the radio every Thursday morning, I got all these Seahawks reporters and writers, and they'd come in, and we'd call it the Seahawks round table. It's, uh, and we did yeah. this for 25 years on the radio. And then when I started doing the podcast, and they started being in other places, and I was here, and there wasn't a table – we decided to call it the Seahawks no table instead of the Seahawks mm. round table. You see, we did that. So we'll cover all of this with the guys that are really experts on the subject. But Chris Carson comes back on a bargain deal. That was a little bit of a surprise. We thought we had lost Chris Carson. They signed Puna. They got this guy, Akella Witherspoon, to play corner because they lost Shaq, Shaq Griffin. Gerald Everett, the tight end from the Rams, rejoins his offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, and he'll be here. I think he'll play a pretty good factor, a pretty big factor for the Seahawks next year. They also brought Nick Ballore back, the fullback, Ethan Posick, the center. They traded for a guard named Gabe Jackson. As you said, they've got three measly draft choices or second round, fourth round, and seventh round. Everybody is saying that this is the draft not to have a lot of draft picks because of COVID. You weren't you weren't able to scout the way you would normally scout, so it's going to be a bigger crapshoot. You may not be able to know who's going to be good or not. They lost Shaq Griffin. They lost Carlos Hyde. They lost Jacob Hollister. They lost David Moore, and they lost Philip Dorsett. Do you have an overall kind of Dylan Shobe philosophy on how the Seahawks are doing in the last eight or ten days? You know, it doesn't sound good. There's other teams with bigger problems. You know, you got the New Orleans Saints with their, um, I don't know if it's called cap space. So yeah. they have like no money. You know, there's like this little thing you can play with all online that if you drop Michael Thomas and all your starters, you still won't even meet like the the recommended cap that you need for NFL. So they're in big debt and people are making projections, you know, like three and 13 next year for the Saints. But Seahawks, they're definitely not a Super Bowl caliber team. They'll they'll probably barely sneak into the playoffs maybe this year. It doesn't sound great. And you, I'm, would you have traded Russell if he could have gotten it? I'd like to talk about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so, they, yeah. I wrote down about this before okay, this. Okay, yeah, so, let's like, hear what they, you wrote. Yeah, so you obviously saw that Chicago reportedly included, like, three draft picks and two yeah. of them being, like, first-rounders and uh, an anonymous starter that would be starting for the Seahawks. Like, I don't know, maybe Khalil Mack? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But, yeah, I think um, it just shows that, like, Seattle's not really going to ever en- entertain the idea of trading Russell Wilson. And I think franchise quarterback is, like, your main top priority guy. So I, I think they were, like, similar to the Deshaun Watson Texans thing right now. Deshaun and uh, Russell still want uh, both want out, but the organizations are both like, no, we're not going to release you. So I think if I was over there, like the GM, I believe, who makes the decisions, I think if the offer was good enough, you get a starter like Khalil Mack and you get those draft picks, you can get like an O-line. Uh, I don't know who you get for quarterback. You maybe like, I don't know how high it would be, but you can maybe get like Justin Fields and then build your O-line around with those draft picks. But I think Russell Wilson, he's still very good. We saw him play super well in the beginning of the season. So he's a guy that can stick around for Seattle. I don't think he's a bomb. I don't think he's like Carson Wentz. I, this is funny because I make Car- make fun of Carson Wentz all the time on my show, actually. You do? So, yes, I do. Yeah, I know. I'm sending him a link to your show, by the way, so that he can hear <laughs> Dylan's show make fun of him. Go ahead. Yeah, Dylan. exactly. I, I'm a big like believer in Jalen Hurts, and I think he's going to have a, a breakout season, sophomore season for the Eagles if they start him because they always draft another quarterback every year. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so – 
that's kind of my take on Russell Wilson. I think he should stay in Seattle unless the offer was too good to resist, which is kind of what's happening right now. They're refusing offers. I don't know who is the starter, obviously. But. See, I, I have a view on this, Dylan. It really depends upon, if you're the Seahawks organization, what you want to be in the next few years. Clearly, they are better with Russell Wilson than they would be without Russell Wilson, but they're kind of stuck, and you kind of mentioned it. They're stuck in the way that, that yeah, they were 12-4 and four last year, maybe a little bit with mirrors. Maybe they were more of an 11-5, and 10-6 type of football team by the end of the year. And everybody's getting better around them. And by keeping Russell Wilson, which everybody wants them to do, yes, you're a playoff contending team, as you just pointed out, next year. But is that enough? Is a playoff contending team enough? Is a wild card-ish or barely a division winning team that doesn't go very far in the playoffs, is that good enough? Because they're not going to get better with draft choices because they only have now three of them. And they're not getting better by bringing free agents in because they the, their salary cap issue was such that they were only trying to tread water. They were trying to keep some of their own guys, maybe get a couple of bargain deals on the market. So they haven't really done anything to go out and improve the football team. That's my view. They haven't gone out. Now, you might say, if you were a Seahawks fan, which you're not, but Seahawks hmm. fans might say, that's fine. We're okay with them being what they are now and what they are every year, which is a team that might win 10 might win 11, should go to the playoffs. Okay, so they won't go to the Super Bowl, and they won't be a serious Super Bowl contending team. If that's good enough, and by the way, Pete Carroll is the oldest coach in the NFL. He doesn't want to start all over. Yeah, he doesn't want to start all over. He doesn't want to lose his quarterback. So maybe he would say to you, yeah, this is fine. We're going to contend for a playoff spot, and if we get things rolling, maybe we'll do better. I just don't see how they can improve themselves from last year at the same time as the Rams are getting better and the Buccaneers are really good and the 49ers are getting better and all these teams around them are taking the next step forward. So then the question becomes, then what's the alternative? And here's the alternative, which they've chosen not to do, I think partly because of Pete Carroll. The alternative is to take one of these deals, is to say to the Chicago Bears, tell you what, You give us four first-round draft choices. You give us Khalil Mack. You give us maybe Nick Foles or some some scrub quarterback. And we'll Well, Nick Foles. I mean, don't call him a scrub quarterback. I think he could be good again. Okay, he could be good again. Uh, You give us a quarterback, (laughs) or we'll go out and get a quarterback. You got to be willing to take a lot of draft choices where you can rebuild the team. You would get a lot of salary cap space, not this year, but next year after Russell Wilson would be off your books and you could start a little bit all over again and start to build something that might end up being better than 10 and 6 and 11 and 5. But you have to be willing to take, what's the expression? One step backwards to go two steps forward. And I I don't think the Seahawks as an organization, certainly not Pete Carroll at his age, is willing to do that. So what they're doing is they're kind of staying status quo, trying to tread water and thinking, oh, with a new offensive coordinator and some new players here and there, maybe a couple of new offensive linemen, we can be what we were last year or a little bit better than we were last year. Does that make any kind of sense? Is that No, I, mean, I agree with yeah. all of those points as you um, kind of stated it. I think, yeah, if... 
the Seahawks really want to make a difference, they're gonna have to they're gonna have to make the hard decision. I think that's that's literally how it's gonna go. Thinking about it more, uh, but I don't know if you saw the stat made by Amazon Web Services, but uh-huh. uh, Patrick Mahomes he ran 432 yards scrambling in the Super Bowl, and that's pretty much what Russell Wilson is doing like every game. So make the hard decision. You live with it. It takes a lot of guts, even if your starter quarterback is Jared Goff, to trade him all the way to Detroit. But obviously, you're getting a better quarterback, in my opinion, with Matthew sure. Stafford. Sure. But you just got to live with like trading away Russell Wilson, and then you realize like you're getting a, a broad area of talent. You're not just getting like another quarterback for Russell Wilson. You're getting like these draft picks that could be for your O line. Obviously, if you're gonna have to make the hard decision and trade away Russell Wilson to better every part of your team. And so they'll, uh, and it's not over yet. I, I don't think we should paint them with a broad stroke just yet. We're still going to wait on K.J. Wright. We're still waiting on Carlos Dunlap. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe K.J. Wright will come back. Maybe Benson Mayowa will come back. Maybe they will do something else in free agency. There's still a ton of players in the NFL, a ton of free agents that are available. They've got to make some decisions on restructuring a couple of contracts. They can restructure uh, Russell Wilson's deal to free up space for this offseason, but what that does is it makes it harder to trade him next year. If you want to entertain the idea of trading him a year from now, now his dead money will be more if you restructure his deal. Same thing goes for Bobby Wagner, so they've got some decisions to make, and there's a Jamal Adams problem that they have. Jamal Adams, the great safety that they spent so much to get, and they came here and he led the world, he led the team in sacks. He wants, even though he's got one more year left on his contract, he wants $20 million a season, they want to give him 15 or 16 million dollars a season so they got to figure out whether he's going to play in the final year of his contract I don't think he's willing to do that a lot of things have to still happen and we will discuss them all Dylan with the Seahawks note table in our very next segment followed by two guys that won NCAA tournament games back in the day with buzzer beaters and then Al Bernstein the boxing commentator, the Hall of Fame boxing commentator, who will discuss Marvin Hagler and the 1980s in the middleweight division as he passed away last week at the age of 66. And then you and I will come back for what we call the other stuff segment. Deal? Deal. Okay, round two time. Make Mitch look silly with investment trivia. Here's Katie Versio a senior financial planner of Evergreen Golf Call. Hi, Katie. I think I was one and a half out of three last time, something like that, 50%. Yes. Hi, Mitch. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to see how you do this time. Okay, question one, go. So we've all seen GameStop in the news. Which of the following is correct regarding short selling? Unlimited upside. Two, there's unlimited downside. It generates an income stream or it hedges your position. Well, because Jeff Dix of Evergreen Golf Call was on a recent show, I know the answer to this. It can go up, up, and away. It could go up as high as it wants to go. So there's unlimited downside because when Mm -hmm. you short a stock, you're rooting for it to go down and it could go up forever. That's right. Yes. So you're correct. It's number two. There's unlimited downside. So that's why it can be so dangerous because it's unlike if you were to just buy a stock what we'd call long, where you know the price can't go below zero. All right, I'm one for one. Okay, so with tax season coming up, individuals need to remember to make their IRA contributions for 2020 before April 15th. So for individuals that are under the age of 50, what's the maximum that you can contribute? Is it $10,000, $6,000, 
$19,000 or $1,000? Yeah, I know the answer to this. For many, many years, even though I'm now over the age of 50, my accountant every year in April would tell me to make this contribution to my IRA, and I would grumble. But I did it, and it was $6,000 every year. Correct. Uh, yeah, you're two for two here. It's important to remember to make those ongoing contributions. I know it can be a little bit of a pain, but you get a little bit of a break because you've got until April 15th of the next year to make them. And if you're over the age of 50, you actually get another $1,000, so you can contribute up to $7,000. Two for two. I'm going for the clean sweep, Katie. Okay, so 2020 was obviously a very turbulent year. Uh, what was economic growth for the year as measured by GDP? Was it zero or flat on the year? Was it negative three and a half percent? Was it negative 6.2% or was it up 1%? Gross domestic product, right? That's right. I'm going to go down 6%. It was a bad year. Oof, so actually, uh, you got that one incorrect. The correct answer is actually two, negative 3.5%. You know, we saw some of the sharpest decline in GDP back in the spring, in March and April, but the second half of the year actually rebounded quite a bit. So that's why it's not down as much as it could have been. Well, two for three. In my second go around, I'm still going up. I'm going three for three the next time. She's Katie Versio, and she's a senior financial planner with Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Over the 29-yard line. Carson. Carson with a first down and more. For a touchdown, Chris Carson. Murray looking the other way, looking end zone for Kirk, and it's picked off. Witherspoon in the end zone. Off on first down. Everett in stride. Wow! Touchdown, Rams. All right, episode 134. We got to get the Seahawks no table in here because a lot has happened. A lot hasn't happened. <laughs> In the last eight or ten days with the Seahawks. Seahawks no table. Joe Fan, NBC Sports Northwest, my guy. And Brady Henderson, ESPN, ESPN.com. I want to just start, Brady, and Joe, with just kind of an overview. Where are the Seahawks? My contention is they are not better than they were at the end of the year, but there's still more to come. Where would you say they are? And offer us your thoughts over the last eight or ten days. Yeah, I, th I think they've had an okay start to free agency, and, and that's the thing to remember is this is just the start of this. They were not planning on filling out their entire team uh, by March 21st or whenever it was. You know, they, they realize that this is an ongoing process. I mentioned this before. They're going to add players after June. Obviously, they only have three draft picks right now, but you figure they're going to end up with more. Um, that said, in terms of what they did over the first week, I mean, it was kind of a typical slow start for them where they really sat out the first couple days Everybody was freaking out, and I wonder if maybe there was a little bit of worry in, in that front office just with all of the interior offensive linemen that were going off the board. From what I understand, they made a pretty strong run at Kevin Zeitler, and then you saw a bunch of other guards get signed, and I wonder if there was maybe more of a sense of urgency for them uh, in making that trade for Gabe Jackson. So that was the offensive line. It was the big focal point uh, just for observers like me and you guys, just given what Russell Wilson had said and adding a player like Gabe Jackson, albeit at a pretty big cost with uh, a couple big salaries and a fifth-round draft pick. Uh, it was expensive, but he is a very good player, and that is an upgrade that they had to make. Yeah, I agree with Brady. And to me, 
that's the signature move of the first week. I think Gerald Everett, a nice piece who fits with Shane Waldron. And anytime your new offensive coordinator will sign off on a playmaker, you feel really good about the ceiling that is yet untapped in what he could potentially do in Seattle that, that we didn't get to see with him behind Tyler Higby in Seattle. Bringing back Puna Ford was mandatory. Akella Witherspoon, again, a cheap player with some upside. Um, Ethan Posich, you understand that maybe a bit more in terms of the budget, but you hope that in year two as a starter, he can improve with Damian Lewis improving in year two and then Gabe Jackson, the solidifying force there in the middle of the offensive line, getting Chris Carson back. I think something uh, I, don't, I, I certainly didn't expect. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't expect him to be back, maybe to be overpriced for Seattle, but to get him back and to be creative with the contract where you have that third voidable year but then also, uh, you know, you get his cap number down to two and a half million to where he's affordable in year one or this upcoming year. But, the, but Gabe Jackson's where it all starts. They had to make one signature move along the offensive line. The, the guard market was far more shallow than the center market. Um, and I think, I think I agree with Brady. There's a little bit of desperation to where if you don't trade for Gabe Jackson at that point, you'd already missed out on Zeitler and maybe others. What do you do then? And so now that you have him in the fold, given the cost, I also think that the wrinkle here is that they didn't have to pay a record-breaking salary to get him five years plus um, to where, yes, this should make Russell Wilson happy, but it's not a guarantee now that he stays long-term. So even if you do have to move on from him eventually, you're not tied now to an offensive lineman on this record-setting contract. If, if at any point the Seahawks have to move on from Russell Wilson. It behooves them to have as clean a slate as possible and as empty a canvas as possible to rebuild it how they want and how they choose. And so I think Gabe Jackson is the perfect piece that one A, make Russell Wilson happy and be an improvement, but B, they're not tied too long-term at an insane and exorbitant cost. I, I got to follow up with you, Joe, and Brady. You can jump in on this on Gabe Jackson. I saw where he was ranked 40th among starting guards by PFF, if you like that. I know the Raiders didn't want him anymore. They didn't want the center anymore either. I wonder aloud, I don't watch Raiders football all that much. How good is he? Did they really get a good guard? And are they really going to the gate with Posick at center again? Or do you think there's another free agent center coming or a, a draft center. Joe, start with you. Are you sure that Gabe Jackson is as good as everybody's saying that he is? I think he's a significant upgrade over Mikey Upati and Jordan Simmons. And that doesn't mean he's an all pro best guard in the league, but I do think for nine and a half million, he played all 16 games last year. I think there's an, an element to where you hope that he, he makes Damian Lewis better, makes Ethan Postage better. Um, and I think you look at the cost and it's immense, but the options behind Gabe Jackson are far worse. Joe, is he better than Zeitler? Is he better than the other guards that went before him to other teams? He's not Tooney, and you'd probably say he's in the ballpark of Zeitler. Okay. And I don't, I don't want to claim to be an offensive line expert, <laughs> and, and but I think that is, uh, I would say that's the ballpark. To me, there was one guard that was the prize of free agency and the Chiefs got him and paid him a record-breaking deal and that's Joe Tooney. Uh, and I think Zeitler and Gabe Jackson are on par and then the drop-off is okay. extreme beyond that. Um, I think Ethan Posich is uh, he's cheap. You know what you're getting. If you had to, you could live with him. 
but I do think the door is open to potentially use their second round pick on a center or a guard. If you decide maybe Damian Lewis is potentially a center. Uh, this draft is very deep in terms of interior offensive linemen. And so if there's a guy you fall in love with at guard or center, you might pull the trigger there. But at least you have guys in place now to where you say all the holes are filled. And if we had to play week one tomorrow, we could get the job done with the guys we've got currently on the roster. I am also not, I don't profess to be any sort of offensive line expert, but just I, I've talked to somebody who is a, a lot better of authority on this that knows what they're talking about on this stuff and and the, what he said was that Zeitler is the better run blocker Jackson is the better pass blocker now Jackson's also a couple years younger and so maybe there is a little bit more long-term upside obviously he's only under contract for two seasons so it's not like they're committing to him for as long as they would have you know had they signed Joe Tooney that never seemed realistic to me I don't think that was ever really in play for them they knew that he was going to get paid you know 14 million dollars so Gabe Jackson is not Joe Tooney, but he doesn't cost anywhere near what Joe Tooney is costing. And look, I mean, I, I don't look at some of the huge, huge, massive free agent contracts given out to offensive linemen in recent seasons. You think the Jaguars regret paying Andrew Norwell all that money? Do you think the Giants regret paying Nate Solder all that money? Clearly they did because they cut him and then they resigned him. So I, I the Seahawks were never going to pay uh, Tooney, and I don't think that they should have. I, I think somebody like Zeitler or um, or Gabe Jackson was much more realistic. Now, I've, I've heard that Russell w Wilson was pounding the table uh, for Kevin Zeitler. It was a guy that he played with. Um, he, he wanted to reunite with him. Zeitler was interested in being here. And I what I from what I understand, uh, the Seahawks did not want to go to a third year, uh, which Baltimore did. So that's why that deal fell through. And that's why the Seahawks ended up with Gabe Jackson. And he was pounding the table, uh, Brady, on Chris Carson as well, as you reported in all your peers reported at ESPN should we just put the Russell Wilson thing to bed now it didn't happen if it was going to happen it would have happened with Chicago I heard somebody say not so fast my friends let's just wait let's just wait there's still a lot of time and something dramatic can happen do we really think that John Schneider is going to go into a draft with three picks in seven rounds that would be an unbelievable story in and of itself if that happens and if not where is he going to get picks Talk to me about what you believe, Brady, the true story is as it pertains to Russell Wilson and the Seahawks trading him in the last two weeks. I think that they are in a better place now than they were in the last two weeks. And, and I think the start there was with Gabe Jackson. And, and do not get this wrong. Gabe Jackson alone does not solve the whole issue between Russell Wilson and the Seahawks because, as we all know, this was about a lot more than just one offensive lineman. It was about a lot more than an offensive lineman at a tight end and maybe another offensive lineman. Um, so to think that everything is going to be hunky-dory between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson now, now that they signed Gabe Jackson, uh, th there's a long way to go. And I think there's a long way to go on both sides because there were some upset feelings in the organization from the way that Wilson handled that. It's not just a one-sided deal here. So uh, there's a long way to go, I think, between, you know, from – you know to, to get to where everything is fine and that's part of the question the other question is what does it mean in terms of whether or not the Seahawks are going to trade for him we heard we saw the report from Adam Schefter uh, a week or so ago saying that you know the Bears made a strong run at him uh, but we're told by the Seahawks that they are not trading Wilson at this time and that was the wording at this time so Clearly, that you know left the door open for this. I think uh, the 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 most likely time that if he would have been traded before this season, it most likely would have happened before free agency because then 
the Seahawks and whatever team he goes to could then, um, you know, set out in free agency knowing who their quarterback is. So I, I don't think it's completely off the table. You said, can we put it to bed? No, but I think that uh, I think that that idea can start getting ready for bed, even if it's not ready to be put to bed all the way. Joe, if you had to bet your PXG irons on whether Russell Wilson is the starting quarterback in 2022 for the Seattle Seahawks, you would bet which way? I wouldn't be willing to bet. I would try to abstain and keep my PXGs and so I can shoot 95 at any given moment. Uh, to me, it all depends on how the season goes. I am a firm believer that winning cures everything, and I think we've seen that across sports, no matter what the sport is. But I don't think we can confidently say, yes, he will be here in 2022. No, he won't be here in 2022 without knowing how the season goes. Yes, they might make moves to try to put forth this olive branch to Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson might be saying the right things in terms of recruiting Chris Carson and mending relationships along the offensive line and making sure the locker room is back on board and moving in the right direction. But at the end of the day, if they regress for a second straight season from the divisional round in 2019 to the wild card round in 2020, to potentially worse or even stagnant. I mean, status quo doesn't work either. I do think this will be the last year for Russell Wilson in Seattle. I think that is how that's how much pressure is on this season, given the tension on both sides, the expectations at an organizational level, and the, the sense of urgency that Russell Wilson feels that this has to get done right now. And so to me, I don't even think you can have the conversation with any sort of certainty. We can throw blind darts at the wall if we want. And if we had to, my guess would be that he's not there in 2022. But it all depends on on where they go in the playoffs next year. All right, I got a long list of stuff for you guys. And if we we don't get to them and and go back and forth and get quick thoughts, we'll be here all night. And I don't want to do that to you guys. So I'm just going to get some quick thoughts. Let's just play a little rapid fire. I'll give you a name. You give me some thoughts. Brady, we'll start with you. Brady Henderson, ESPN, ESPN.com. How surprised are you that Chris Carson came back and signed a deal with the Seahawks? Not to sound like a smartass, but not not totally shocked. And the only reason I say that is because we knew that this was a huge market. for. I mean, there's a lot of running backs hitting the market. And I know when I checked with, with somebody with the Seahawks before free agency and asked them, just what's their read on it? What do they think? And this person said 50-50. And I believe that in their minds – the reason they were saying that the Seahawks had a 50% chance of re-signing him, I believe it was because they thought that they envisioned happening exactly what happened, which is the fact that there were so many running backs hitting the market. I mean, James Conner, as of the time we were recording this, I don't even believe he signed. Kenyon Drake, who's a pretty good running back, only went for, uh, you know, a very small amount of money. And so there's still other guys out there. And uh, I think that certainly, uh, in addition to Chris Carson's injury history, but, um, it was just a very, very weak market for running backs, and that, that's the way that they got him back. Joe, Akello Witherspoon, how good is he, and how troubled are the cornerbacks, the cornerback room for the Seahawks right now without Shaq Griffin? I'm more of a believer in Trey Flowers, and I think a lot of other people are. I think you could do much worse. I don't think he's going to ever be an all-pro, Pro Bowl guy, but I think he is sufficient for a number two corner. Akello is a guy who had some really good games in 2020 and bounced back a bit. He was regularly in Kyle Shanahan's doghouse, and I covered the Niners when they drafted him, and I remember 
talking to Jeff Halfley, the DB's coach at the time, now the head coach at Boston College, and he raved about Akella Witherspoon's feet and said, when he first came out, it was, all oh, this guy's afraid to tackle. He's not physical enough. He said, don't worry about that. This guy's plenty physical enough, and he's got feet like you wouldn't believe, the best in, the, in this draft class. But the issue is it's very mental, just like me on the golf course where you can lose it after a hole and a half and never get it back. You know, I'm the mental midget who's on hole 17 worried about the three putt on hole three. Um, he very much is a guy whose confidence wavers and it's much, it's very much a a roller coaster ride. Hmm. And I think for that reason, Kyle Shanahan had a hard time trusting him. And when they made their Super Bowl run, he was benched in favor of Emmanuel Mosley. Now, he bounced back when he had an opportunity to get some starts under his belt again in 2020, had a pretty good pro football focus grade. Um, we saw him going at DK Metcalf a bit on the sidelines, uh, talking some trash in, in one of the matchups against the Seahawks. Um, so there's there's enough upside. He's got the length. He's, he's the 6'2", long-limbed corner that Pete Carroll has traditionally loved at that position. Um, he's a late bloomer. He didn't start dedicating himself to football until his senior year of high school. Um, again, was a soccer player, and so it, it, there's enough there to to buy low on and say, why not? Let's give it a shot. To me, they need to bring back Quentin Dunbar, and you let those three guys, Trey Flowers, Quentin Dunbar, and Akella Witherspoon, battle for the starting job opposite DJ Reed, who presumably will start in place of Shaquille Griffin. Remember, DJ Reed started there for a couple of games while Shaq was out with the hamstring injury in 2020, but. Knowing how expensive the Seahawks roster is, you're going to have to build other positions on a budget. And I think they can get that done at corner. I think you can do worse than the three guys they've got currently on the roster. You bring back Dunbar. I think there can be enough confidence that there's capable corners on both sides of the field. Brady, Gerald Everett, what kind of a year will he have in his first season as a Seahawks tight end? Well, if you look at the four seasons he's had, for the last three seasons, he's He's improved upon his catches and his yards. So that looks like a guy who is um, ascending at, I think, only 26, 27 years old. So I like the signing. I think everybody could have predicted that the Seahawks would have at least made a a run at him, along with some of those other Rams free agents like Austin Blythe, their center, maybe Josh Reynolds, uh, who was their number three receiver. It just makes sense to have a guy um, who can help with that transition. That's true anytime a team has a new offensive or defensive coordinator. I think it's especially true in what could be another offseason where they don't have as much on-field work and that all, a lot of that is you know contained to just the classroom stuff. I think that can really be beneficial when you have a guy like that who can help other players with that offensive transition. And so $6 million, my first plus reaction, assuming that is the base value of that deal, it seemed a little steep. Um, but again, it's a player with, um, he's a young guy, looks to be an ascending player, knows that offense, and he's going to be playing with a better quarterback than what he's played with uh, in, with the Rams. Joe, the third wide receiver spot. No more Dorsett, no more Moore. Uh, Freddie Swain is still here. Are the Seahawks a wide receiver short at this point? I think so. I don't think you can just say it's Freddie Swain's job. To me, like Brady said, it you know, doesn't take an expert to draw the line between Josh Reynolds and Shane Waldron, much like Gerald Everett was the obvious signing from the jump since Shane Waldron was hired as the team's new offensive coordinator. I do think they need somebody, and I think there's a, the, the wide receiver market is depleted enough. I mean, you look at Juju Smith-Schuster, who had to sign a one-year deal taking some sort of hometown discount to go back to the Steelers and... You know, Kenny Galladay wasn't a, a first hour on 
the Monday of the open negotiating window signing. I mean, it just goes to show you there's a lot of wide receivers out there. It's a talented wide receiver class. And so there are deals to be had. Yes, I do think they need to add a piece rather than banking on the Freddie Swain being the guy. Brady, what are they going to do to get more money under the cap? Are they going to restructure Russell Wilson? Much has been written about that. It's their choice. Um, There's the Bobby Wagner contract. Are they going to do something unexpected to raise some funds? Yeah, they're going to have to do something. And I know when the offseason started, I I wrote a post predicting a few things that they would do. And I wrote in there that I did not think that they would uh, rework Russell Wilson's contract just because I know that they are wary of the long-term ramifications of that uh, in terms of what it means for their cap or for his cap number uh, later down the road. I now think that 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 seems more likely to me than it did even a few weeks ago. Um, So they could do Russell Wilson's uh, contract and or Bobby Wagner's contract and you made the point that that's that's their choice you're right that is a right of theirs they they do not technically need to get Russell Wilson's approval to redo that but given the temperature of the situation there I mean logically they would they would want to clear that with him and at least give him a heads up so I, I've seen it written before uh, ad nauseum that they that technically they don't have to get his approval but I'm sure um, logically, they would want to do that. So there's other things that they could do. That, you know, I was wondering if they might restructure Gabe Jackson's contract just because he's uh, making nine and a half million in, in each of the next two seasons. Now that would go against one of their organizational, uh, you know, sort of uh, rules, whatever you want to call it, that they typically don't renegotiate contracts with more than a year left. But that could be a way if they wanted to. If they were willing to extend him by another year. They could free up some cap space that way. Um, there's other guys who are in line for extensions, but we have not seen them do that. Uh, we have not seen them extend players just for the sole purpose of creating cap space. Then again, we have not seen them add a th- avoidable year, avoiding year like they did in Chris Carson's contract. So the fact that they did that, that shows me that they are willing to kind of stray from some organizational norms in what is, as we all know, a pretty unique year with the salary cap. Joe Fan, how about the pass rush? I'm obsessed with the pass rush. It's appearing as if they're hoping the same thing happens with Dunlap that happened with Carson. That he goes out, he doesn't find anything, and he comes back to the Seahawks. What do you think is going to happen with Carlos Dunlap? I'm curious. I'm 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 also curious. I think it's fair to say at this point that the market is probably not what Carlos Dunlap expected it to be. And so from that standpoint, I do think it's trending in the right direction for the Seahawks. But I do believe while things are trending in the right direction in terms of what Dunlap's market is, I am curious what the sentiment is there and what the feelings are and if there's any sort of hurt feelings on Carlos Dunlap's side to where, hey, I, I earned the money that, you know, I took a pay cut, I earned my money, that 14.1 is indicative of, of the play that I put on tape over the second half of the season. You saw that I was the catalyst to, to spark the pass rush to where it was a, you know, worse than what it was in 2019 and all of a sudden was a top 10 group in the NFL. So I'm curious what the relationship is right now between Carlos Dunlap and the organization, but I do think it's possible. I'm very curious to see what they end up doing there, whether it's Clowney, whether it's Alden Smith, whether it's Carlos Dunlap. I do think the amount of resources they choose to invest at a pass in a pass rusher or two directly correlates with how much they are banking on Daryl Taylor to be an impact player next season. And that's, to me, a incredible wild card of this whole thing. Daryl Taylor might be a perennial Pro Bowl or one of the best pass rushers, we've, but we had, we had no idea 
but they love him. I mean, John Schneider told us the night they drafted him that they considered him in the first round of last year's draft. And so, to me, what they choose to do or not do at the pass rusher spots correlates to how much faith they have in Daryl Taylor next year. Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, KJ Wright. It's, it's sort of, you know, like we, what we just talked about with Chris Carson. I think clearly the market is not there for him. And we heard him say that, you know, after that great season that he had, that he wanted a market value contract, which translates to he wants a raise from $7.75 million, which was the average he made on his last two contracts. As of right now, the fact that he's still unsigned, you know, a week or so into free agency, I wonder if that same deal is still out there for him. And if he's, you know, maybe he could be available for uh, something less than what the Seahawks paid him on his last contract. Now, that's unfortunate for K.J. Wright because he has played some of the best football of his career for the past two seasons. But there just does not seem to be a market for a 31-year-old linebacker, even one who's been pretty productive the last couple seasons. And as it did with Carson and as it could with Carlos Dunlap, that could work in the Seahawks' favor. But there's certainly – I never thought that they were going to give him a raise. And I and I was even wondering – I wasn't even sure if they would give him the same contract they gave him last time. Hmm. Final words. I'll let you guys have the final thoughts. I'll give you mine. Uh, they may be improved along the offensive line. It's great to have Chris Carson back. But as we sit here on recording night, I can't imagine how the Seahawks are better uh, from a pass rush standpoint. Maybe it's Daryl Taylor. They seem to have taken a step back so far in pass rush. They seem to have taken a step back so far in uh, cover corners. To me, without Shaq Griffin, uh, Joe, final thoughts on either that or something else with regard to the Seahawks? I don't think there's any way of avoiding they're going to need to develop the talent that's already on the roster. And last week, I put out a story, seven players that will make or break the team's immediate future. And that's a a dramatic headline, but I, I believe it. I think there are guys that are already on the roster that have uncertain potentials and uncertain ceilings to which if they were able to develop these guys, all presumably have decent ceilings, then it would change our entire perception of this team. Because I agree with you, Mitch. I don't think you look at the moves they've made and say they are, without a doubt, a better team. And I don't know if there's a move they're going to make to where you say, okay, they lost in the wild card round in embarrassing fashion to the Rams. Are they a better team than the, the, the team that took the field that day? I don't know if they're going to be able to make a move to where you will say with confidence, yes, they are better. But you look at names, I'll run through them very, very quickly for you. I mean, we talked about Daryl Taylor. To me, he's number one by far, given the investment, given the position of need, given the positional value. Um, Then you have Jordan Brooks. I don't think they can pay KJ Wright what he's looking to get paid. If he comes back on a cheap deal and they can find a way to make it work, great. But you drafted this dude in the first round to be a three-down linebacker. I don't think you can pigeonhole him to a a situational role and a part-time role for a second straight year. What does he look like? Is he the next Bobby Wagner and, and the, the running mate next to him for the you know, next couple of seasons that they're hoping uh, he will be? Damian Lewis, great run blocker, left lot to be desired in pass protection. Seems like a sure thing. You expect him to take a step forward. Um, Marquise Blair, LJ Collier, uh, Alton Robinson, and Kobe Parkinson. I think those seven guys all have ceilings that we don't necessarily know, but I think it's fair to say they have impact player level ceilings 
Now can the coaching staff develop those guys and make them elevate the overall ceiling of this Seahawks team in 2021? Brady, you get the final word. Okay, since you are obsessed with the pass rush, Mitch, I will stick with the pass rush. I, I think there's a very good chance that Carlos Dunlap ends up back in Seattle. And when I predicted a few weeks ago, I, I made a list of predictions. I predicted that they would cut him, and I predicted that they would bring him back for a lot less than $14 million. And I, I don't have any, re, any, any reason to think that's any less likely now that he's been unsigned uh, for a week or so. And you've seen some of the pass rush deals. I mean, you've seen younger, equally productive guys go for 12 13 million dollars and so that tells me that carlos dunlap at yes productive but at 32 years old um he's just not going to get that especially the longer it goes and so i i really I, I think there's a good chance that he ends up back in seattle i'll make a couple other quick predictions uh, i think jordan simmons is going to end up back in seattle and i think that you're going to see the seahawks kick the tires on chance warmack again maybe give him a shot but uh, the big one obviously is carlos dunlap just because of that pass rush for as much as they've done over the first week of free agency that's still the glaring need you guys are awesome joe fan Make sure that you follow him, read his work, NBC Sports Northwest, and follow him on Twitter. What an active Twitter he has. And Brady Henderson, my guy from ESPN, ESPN.com, also on Twitter. These two guys have done incredible work over the last eight or ten days. And if you're not paying attention, then you're not paying attention. And Joe, just for the record, keep those headsets. Steal them. That's the best you've sounded since you've joined the Seahawks no table. I don't care who they belong to. If they're Beckys, tell her I'll buy her some new ones. Keep those headsets, Joe, okay? All right, I'm keeping these headsets. And we also got a mandate that Brady Henderson keeps the mustache because that thing is absolutely magnificent. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it, Mitch. And Brady, you're the best. All right, thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Hey, it's time to catch up with Zeke's Pizza president, Dan Black. How are you, Dan? What's up, Mitch? How's it going? All good. Lots going on in your world. Any uptick in the restaurants? And what can you tell us about people in the Northwest returning to work for the catering portion of your business? Yeah, people are dining out. And then, yeah, the other thing that's happened since the last time we talked is we've noticed an uptick in catering. Work from home, people are tired of it. So there's people going back to the office. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started to notice some of our daytime delivery pickup, which is oh, great. That's great. And expansion, red hot. How many since the COVID crisis and now you're moving closer and closer to the Canadian border, I hear? Yeah, we just signed a deal for two restaurants in Bellingham. We're really excited about Bellingham. It's a great Northwest town. It's a great fit for Zeke's. And yeah, those two restaurants represent numbers seven and eight in terms of deals we've signed since COVID hit. Your locations aren't the only thing that's expanding. You've always been known for your craft beer list and that's growing too. Yeah, like I say, we're known for having one of the best craft beer programs in the Northwest. And one of the cool features of that is we do exclusive collaboration beers with a lot of the best breweries in the Northwest. And we've got one coming out soon uh, with a brewery out of Winthrop called Old School House Brewery. Mm -hmm. They make some of the best IPAs in the Northwest. Uh, this one's called Moonbooter IPA. Both companies are full of avid skiers and Moonbooter's a slang for a jump where you catch massive air. And so it's just a really good beer. We're excited about it. It'll be in cans and available for delivery. Fantastic, Dan. And beer can be delivered right to your door with great Northwest style pizza. The easiest way, just download the Zeke's Pizza app. Just a few clicks and you're all set. We love Zeke's Pizza at Mitch Unfiltered. It's homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Serious with that shot. 
Farouk Manesh has just buried his fourth three-point shot today. Taylor attacks, floats, even at 72, 2.7 left. Last chance for the Panthers. And he said he wouldn't take a timeout in this situation. Jesperson, half-court heat for the I'm not sure that there's anything better in sports than an NCAA tournament buzzer beater or game-winning shot, especially if they come from the underdog. We've got two guys on Unfiltered that did it six years apart from the same school, believe it or not, Northern Iowa. In 2010, two different shots from guest number one, two days apart. Ali Farokmanesh is with us, the three-point sniper versus UNLV and then Kansas uh, for the ninth-seeded Panthers. Hi, Ali. How are you? Hey, Mitch. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you for being with us. And then in 2016, will anyone ever forget Paul Jesperson from half court against Texas? Paul, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us, Mitch. Appreciate it. So I'll start with you, Ollie. Who's is bigger? Who's is better? I start with the old man first. Who goes down? <laughs> who goes down in Northern Iowa lore as the bigger shot? I mean, you hit two, and you hit one against a number one seed, but the other guy on our line hit a half quarter at the buzzer. How are we going to do this? I mean, Paul easily gets degree of difficulty on me on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I was open. I mean, what? Everyone's making that shot. Uh, no, that was that. It was fun for me to watch Paul's, to be honest, because I was uh, I was just getting started in Nebraska and coaching and. Um, was watching the game downstairs in my uh, in-laws' basement, and I was going nuts. So it, it was fun to be on that end for me, watching Paul make that shot against Texas. Paul, do you get any uh, style points deducted because you banked it in? I'm kind of thinking that you got you got to hit that one. You can't use the backboard on that half court shot. No, <laughs> it would have been better if it was on net. But I'm taking that W <laughs> ten out of ten times. <laughs> uh, were you aware? Did you watch Ollie six years earlier, Paul? I wasn't. Yeah, I did. I did. I remember I was actually watching that game with my brothers, um, and we were going crazy when he hit that. Um, I actually got asked a similar question a few days ago and I told him Ali's tops mine because uh, Ali was the uh, he was the originator of that he made <laughs> uh, made made you and I kind of the OGs and um, you know kind of put you and I on the map um, what him and what him and his team had done while he was there was was special and kind of gave us a uh, gave us a lot of recognition for the guys to come after him Ali the crazy thing is it was in the same building was it not Paul were you in o- you were in Oklahoma we were in Oklahoma yeah, we were in OKC too. That's right. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's the craziest part. And then actually, so like twenty years before that too, um, a guy named Maurice Newby made a similar shot to the one that I made against UNLV. Made a similar shot to win the game against Missouri in Oklahoma City too. So they just need to send the Panthers to Oklahoma City, and we're we're guaranteed for some wins. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I, for I, sure. I, I want for our audience who may not remember. I, I can't believe anybody who's of age doesn't remember either one of these. Let's go through this a little bit. Ali, let's start with you. First of all, tell us about the shot against UNLV from the left wing. You were way out. I don't, you've said in, in, in retrospect you didn't realize how far out you were when you got that opportunity. Walk us through that one, and then against the press, you're wide open on the right wing two days earlier or two days later against Kansas. Yeah, I was I was more excited about the UNLV one just because the degree of difficulty on that one, not not like Paul's, but 
we were getting pressed the whole game. It was contrasting styles of uh, two teams. And I actually gave up the three to tie the game, uh, the possession before that. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling a little guilty coming down on the other end. Um, But it just kind of worked out. The ball was moving around. They were trapping us in the half court. Um, Ball got swung across to Johnny Moran. And then Johnny found me on the opposite wing. And um, I was kind of open, but it was probably from 25, 26, 27 feet back. And stepped into it in rhythm, though, and and let it fly from there. And it felt good as soon as it left my hands. I think that's probably Paul. I mean, Paul's was a half-court one, but I'm sure he felt the same thing. When you shoot a shot like that, it just – you kind of have an inclination whether that thing has a chance or not. Ollie, Um, do you you have – before you get to Kansas, do you have a chance to get nervous? People like me would love to know we're never in that situation. We'll never be in that situation. Is there time to get nervous, Ollie? No, I I think once you get in the rhythm of a game, it's just – you just start playing and you don't think about anything else. And I think at, at the end of the day, you're just trying to win. And if you're, if you, if you're just focused on the process of those things throughout the whole game, mm-hmm. I never thought about the shot once. It was just kind of one of those things. That's what I do. And the ball was in rhythm. The, it got kicked out to me and it was just, it felt good as soon as it hit my hands. And I think that's one of the things as a player and the more you play, you just realize that if you're not nervous before the games, there's something wrong with you anyways. So <laughs> I think those nerves are just going on throughout the entire game. And you, now you're just playing. Once it gets to that that point in the game, it's it's it just comes natural. It's instinctual. Okay, so now the nine seed, you guys are the nine seed. You're into the second round. You face the one seed, Kansas. It's late in the game. I think you guys are up one. They're pressing to try to turn you over. And, I mean, you could see it a mile away. The guy, the hero from two nights earlier is standing there on the right wing. If they ever break the press, if they get it by half court, you're going to be wide open. You had to know that that had to go so slow for you because you were standing there wide open getting ready for the shot. Yeah, I, clearly my coaches didn't trust me in the front court, so they moved me in the back court. Uh, but, so, because we hadn't touched, we hadn't, we hadn't crossed half court probably in the last four or five minutes because people probably don't remember that, but we were actually up like 12 points at one point in the second half. Yeah. Um, and we kind of blew it. Uh, so it ended up working out for us in the end, but we were just excited to get the ball across half court and it almost got stolen two separate times in that one possession um, that I made the shot. Um, and then Kajo threw it up the court to me and you're right. It was kind of one of those moments where as soon as I caught it, same rhythm as the game before, but they were so far backed off. It was at, at that time, it was either I pull it out, give them a chance. Who knows if they foul or don't foul. We'd already turned it over enough. So three more passes, they might've stolen it anyways. Um, but in those moments, you don't think about that. All you think about is this is a chance to win the game. And I, we're playing the number one team in the country and you live for those moments. Uh, and that's any college basketball player's dream is to have the ball in their hands to win a game and take that shot. And so I didn't hesitate in the same scenarios, UNLV, uh, um, maybe different circumstances, but same, same type of mindset going into that shot too. Man, incredible. And then Paul, we've got Texas down two. They bring the ball down the floor and score to tie it with 2.7 seconds to go. Walk us through it. You've only been asked about this a million times. Let's make it a million and one. 2.7 on the clock, Paul. Texas is the the opponent. Same gym as Ollie. What happened? Yeah, I think uh, – I can't remember what action they ran or if they, they just isolated Isaiah Taylor, but he was able to get to the rim. And I think he had a pretty contested shot. But um, Bohannon kind of, was kind of our guy all year that, you know, was taking the ball out of the basket um, in situations like that. So – you know, he was poised, um, didn't rush himself, um, 
obviously we didn't have a play late game like that, like some teams do, but we were able to get spaced out. I think I was butt to the sideline. West was flashing back to the ball and Bohannon made a heck of a read. And after that, it's kind of instinctual, instinctual when you catch it and saw a couple of defenders coming at me, was able to get free a little bit and left my hand and I knew it had a chance. Kind of <laughs> like what Ali was saying. Um, when those shots go up, you never know, especially from half court, you never know if they're going in. But uh, I knew when it left my hand, it wasn't going to be left or right. Um, couldn't tell you if it was going to be long or short for sure, but I knew it had a chance to go in. And um, thankfully it did. And we were able to uh, live to see another day. Okay, Paul, I'm putting you on the hook here. If you and I today, if I flew to wherever you are, and you and I went into a gym, and we were going to recreate that moment. Now, I've seen Ollie. By the way, Ollie, I've seen you and your family. We're going to talk about that. That is the most adorable thing I've ever seen, you recreating your shot with your kids but and your wife. But, uh, Paul, I give you 10 shots. How many do you make if we recreate the moment in an empty gym? Shoot, out of 10? I'm not sure. I know one of those things is going in. I don't know how many more, but one of those things is going down. Hey, what Ali forgot to tell you, too, is how many takes that thing took him to uh, uh, <laughs> I, I was in the same boat, about 10. Uh, <laughs> Ali, you go, and I'm up here in Seattle. I didn't even know this at the time until I was preparing to, to visit with you. You were, you were born and raised in Pullman, Washington. Yep, back, back in the Palouse, and uh, I was – I actually grew up being a Coug for probably my uh, 15 years of my life. My parents were the coaches at Washington State for volleyball. Wow. And you didn't get a chance from Washington State? You didn't get a chance from anybody coming out of high school to play Division One college basketball, right? No, Division One, Division Two, NAIA. I, <laughs> I tried to walk on at places. It was nothing. So it was uh, – yeah, no, yeah, nobody. I was begging for anything. Now, hold on a second. So you go from the Palouse with no offers. You, tra- you, 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 your family leaves, and you get no offers. You play junior college basketball. You end up beating Kansas, the number one team in uh, in that bracket. And then you're on the cover of sport. You go from the Palouse to Sports Illustrated. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, with a couple road stops in between there, but yeah, basically. <laughs> Paul, you didn't get you didn't get the cover of Sports Illustrated, did you, Paul? No, no, I did not. I didn't, my shot wasn't as uh, as big as his, though. You know, I I had Paul, I had um, Bryce Drew on last week on the show, and we were talking about his shot, which is one of my favorites, just because of the execution of the play. You guys remember that? Yeah. You've seen the highlight, and I asked him if he ever got tired of answering the questions and talking about it. If I were at, no matter how glorious it is, if I were asked the same question and asked to talk about the same thing for 25 straight years or whatever it is, I'd get tired of, of chatting about it. Do you ever, Paul, get tired of being asked about the half-court shot against Texas? No, I guess not really because to me it's like, it's almost like a yearly reminder to me and you start thinking back of, the guys you played with, the relationships you made, the practices, when you didn't want to practice, when you did want to practice, the summer workouts, you start reflecting on all that stuff. And it, it, it brings you, it brings me at least back to a good spot. Um, it's a, it's a friendly reminder to what, you know, playing college athletics is all about and the relationships you build and the ups and downs you go through with, um, you know, your staff you play for and the guys you play for. So it's, it's uh, it, you know, it brings a smile to my face every time, even though it's not directly related to you know our team. But it uh, it, it makes me reflect back on on uh, the years I was able to say I was a Panther. Ollie, you're an assistant at Colorado State. How many of your 
your guys have seen the shots that you hit, would you say? Yeah, I make them watch it. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> nah, they, it, it's, it's, just, it's pretty funny, though. Like, when you go through the recruiting process now with kids, too, I don't bring it up or anything, but eventually somehow it gets brought up, and it's usually from their AAU coach or high school coach, and then then they'll send me a random text and be like, I didn't know you could hoop back in the day. <laughs> um, so apparently I, I give off zero vibes of a, a real hooper. Uh, um, you get tired of answering the question and t- talking about it all, you know? No, I, I, same as Paul. Like, I mean, you think about it, like this, this is one of the finite things in life that you get four years to do it and that's it. And that's why the NCAA tournament means so much more because there is no, there's no year. Well, except for this year, there's no year after your senior year. Yeah. Um, and it's done. And, and there's nothing else after that. You can't go back. You can't two years from now have the same moments. It's you get four years to do whatever you can in those four years. And I think both of us were really lucky to be in a situation and have those opportunities to, to be on some really good teams um, and make some runs and make some pretty big shots in March madness. And just like what you said, I think I remember Bryce drew shot. I remember Tyus Edney, yep. um, yeah. all those plays in the NCAA tournament. You remember for a long time. Yeah. 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 Uh, who are we hearing there? Who's that? that? That's, that's my daughter. She wants me to play uh Barbies with her. <laughs> <laughs> Did she, is she a part of the recreation that I saw the video? She was, she was the one that tried to throw the pass up to my wife and was, <laughs> wasn't super successful with it, but she, she was not the one that lived down the crying. Who, who was the, crying kansas baby that was my youngest son (laughs) he uh he was actually so he started crying randomly and then uh the guy that was filming it was like do you i was like do you care if i record i was like yeah absolutely like he's like are you sure i was like yes like you have to do this like that's (laughs) the whole video is based off of him nothing else (laughs) well you guys are great uh paul we're recording this at the time that um illinois just got beat by by chicago loyola of chicago what what do you give us a sense of what these teams, these underdog teams that win, go through the following 24, 48 hours in, in celebrating and understanding what they had just accomplished? Uh, you know, it's funny that you use the word underdog. I think a lot of those teams kind of take that menta- that mentality because, you know, they're labeled as that throughout the year. But I'm sure Ali felt the same way. Like when we went to the tournament, we had a, we did have an up and down year that year, but we never felt like we were truly, you know, an underdog um, going into any of those games, you know, mm-hmm. seating wise, we were lower than the team we were playing, but we fully expected to win those games going into them. We felt like, uh, you know, maybe we didn't match up with them. Great um, size wise and things like that. But um, from a, you know, team versus team five on five, let's roll the ball out and see who comes out on top. We felt like we were going to win that game in both those games, honestly, but, um, you know, following, following that first win, it's, it's like a whirlwind of emotions because you feel like you're on top of the world. Um, you're reflecting back on, you know, season, you're reflecting back on that game, but then you got to turn around and play another game yeah. a day or two later. So and you guys, you it, guys blew a pretty big lead two days later, didn't man, you? Yeah, we, we did. We did that. Uh, that one still haunts me. Um, haunts a lot of the guys that were on that team. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was the highest of the highs and, and the lowest of the lows within like 48 hours. Ollie, when you, when you beat Kansas, 
you get then to go back, I guess, to school for four or five days before the Sweet 16. I'd imagine from that weekend to the Thursday or Friday where you play the Sweet 16 game, you guys are on cloud nine for those three or four days. Yeah, it was it was really hard to sleep, to be honest. Uh, that was probably the biggest thing is we get back. I remember we got back because we played on Saturday. And um, we did a CBS interview with uh, Coach Jacobson, me and him, Sunday morning. And they have me on, and I look like a zombie because I haven't <laughs> slept at all. <laughs> and, then, and then the whole time, I got 8 a.m. class on Monday for my finance financial management class. And I'm doing the classic where you put your hand right above your eyebrows and just pretend like you're looking at your notes, but really I'm knocked out. And um, <laughs> it, the, the professor's coming up to me, and he's like, hey, anything you need with help with anything? I know you guys are super busy with schedule. I'm like, this is amazing you've never said this to me um <laughs> and then you're walking in the hallways and everybody's giving high fives and, and and it was it was an amazing feeling and we had a lot of that the whole year because we had a really good season in general leading up to that but obviously it reached a completely different level once we came back after beating kansas ali Farokmanesh and paul jesperson two guys that will live in ncaa lore from northern iowa actually paul started in virginia ended up in northern iowa both of them hit huge shots paul from half court though he banked it and didn't call it we won't uh, we won't call him for that and then Cold game though <laughs> and then ali <laughs> beat both unlv and kansas the number one seed back in 2010 you guys are great for reminiscing with me thank you so much for being a part of this i know you've been asked a billion times and i hope that we can visit again sometime soon thank you guys yep thanks Mitch. thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us on hey back with us on mitch unfiltered is john waterstrat the owner of fireside home solutions not to mention the presenting sponsor of our fun march madness pool thank you for that john by the way give us an update what's the latest at fireside well thanks mitch it's great to be back and just kind of talking to your listeners and uh, it's been great the Puget Sound area is starting to open itself back up. And I still think that the whole remodel, people wanting to do something to their home continues to get people pouring into our showrooms. And we feel very, very blessed to be able to help them in any way we can. We want to have your team over to the house to come up with a solution outside. We want to put a new fire pit out there. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. Well, tell us about that arm, the fire pit arm of the fireside business. Yeah, it's a great complimentary business to our fireplace business. People want that nice, warm feeling outside, so uh, it's it's done well. So people want to extend those areas outside, so we're able to put a fireplace for a nice living room area outside, or we can do that gathering space under a fire pit. So again, we can do up to uh, fireplaces, fire pits, and we could even provide you heaters outside, extend those uh, chilly nights in the Northwest to a longer period of time outside. Perfect. And while the name is Fireside Home Solutions, you guys introduced Garage Doors, a Garage Doors layer to your business not too long ago. Tell us why you did that and how it's been. Uh, we were able to have an opportunity to uh, purchase one of our competitors. He was doing fireplaces and garage doors. He wanted to retire. So we were able to kind of blend our two companies together. We looked at that garage door business and we said, wow, what a great complimentary business to fireplaces. Creating that warm, cozy feeling inside was that same feeling that people wanted to do on the outside to add to that curb feel of their home. It's one of those things when neighbors drive by and they look at your house like, wow, what happened to that house? And to add that nice curb feel both outside now and then inside the home and having that warm, cozy place, it's, it's pretty exciting to have both of those pieces of our business. Well, it's exciting for us to be partnered with Fireside Home Solutions for the last few years. We're really thrilled and privileged to have you aboard. We love you. FiresideHomeSolutions.com.
Unfiltered. guest on Mitch Unfiltered, I believe, has been one of the most underrated sports broadcasters in the last 40 years. You name it, he's done it. ESPN, NBC, Showtime. He's in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, and he can really sing. He's also the host of Al Bernstein Unplugged. Here's my old friend Al Bernstein. How are you, Al? I'm good, Mitch. Nice to visit with you again. It's great to reconnect with you. Are you still singing, at least in the shower, Al? You know, well, you know, I was doing uh, a lot of performing at the Tuscany Hotel here in Las Vegas, but then, of course, with the when the pandemic hit, I had to stop doing that. So I'm hoping to get back to it, you know, in the next three or four months. Uh, how many years has it been since you broadcasted your first? television boxing match do you remember uh, it? i did it yeah i did it in 1980 so it's been over 40 years believe it or not um luckily i started when i was 10 so that's the good news <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my nose is growing right now but yeah that was the 1980 um espn had been around for just a little bit it was in 79 i think they started middle of 79 i did my first fight i think march or something of uh 1980 yeah and uh, that was the beginning. And you've been doing it ever since 41 years later. Here we are. When when we received the sad news about the passing of Marvin Hagler last week, Al, many of us quietly reminisced about those great glory years of the sport. Leonard, Hagler, Hearns, Duran, the non-heavyweights. Hagler was an interesting guy. He didn't love the limelight. He wasn't showy, and therefore he wasn't really beloved, right? Yeah, I think he had a lot. Well, I think he had a lot of hardcore fans that loved him, but he wasn't. He didn't always get. I don't think his due, and uh, sometimes even the boxing community, uh, when you look at judges' decisions, uh, you know, the, I mean, I'm, he didn't get his first crack at a title for six years. When he did, he, he beat Vito Antofermo to a pulp and ended up with a draw, uh, you know, against uh, Roberto Duran. The decision was way closer than it should have been. Against Mugabe, he was only ahead by a scant amount in the scorecards when he scored the stoppage. And then, of course, there's Jojo Guerra's scorecard in the uh, Ray Leonard fight. Um, so there were times when I think people were, because he because of the fact that he wasn't uh, always flamboyant they kind of took him for granted but he was remarkable and his accomplishments make him you know perhaps the best middleweight champion of all time certainly in the top two or three he carried around that that chip on his shoulder that made him a better a better fighter didn't it now 
Yeah, I think he understood that he wasn't the road wasn't paved for him. And so if he was going to make something happen that was good, he had to work hard for it and make sure he made it happen. And you know, there were there were things about Marvelous Marvin Hagler that I think made him ex- even more exceptional. The fact that he fought in one weight division his whole career, um, had the same trainer-manager combination in the Petronelli brothers yeah. for his whole career, and approached the sport with the same dedication from the first moment he laced on a pair of gloves to the last time. And, you know, at one point, the Petronellis came to him it was toward near the end of his year, middle of two-thirds of the way through his career when he was making seven-figure paydays. And they said, you know, it's not fair. Uh, we, should, we should take a flat fee instead of taking our percentage because we're taking too much money from you, which showed you what kind of guys they were. And then Marvin Hagler showed what kind of man he was by saying, absolutely not. And if you ever bring it up again, uh, you don't have to worry about it because I'll fire you. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Um, he was he, he would not let them take less money. And uh, that's the kind of relationship they had for his whole career. Wow. In a sport where everybody was stealing from everybody else. Uh, that's an amazing story. So many of the Hagler fights, Al, jump into your mind. The two that everyone old enough remember the Hearns three-rounder, and, of course, the long away to Leonard Bout. Let's start with April 15, 1985. Hagler-Hearns had to be the best eight minutes. You've been doing this for a long time. Best eight minutes you ever saw of a fight? Yeah, pretty – yeah, it was it was extraordinary. And, you know, I for me, uh, doing that fight, I was only about five years into my broadcasting career, and here I was sitting ringside at this fight – and the broadcast team that night was Kurt Gowdy, Al Michaels, and myself. So I was wow. like thinking to myself, holy cow, I'm here with these, you know, these, this uh, broadcasting royalty around me and, wow. uh, and doing this event. So it was pretty extraordinary. And, and the fight itself, of course, you know, more than lived up to expectations. Even though it was so short, it was filled with so much action and so many uh, stories within a story that, you know, books have been written just about that fight. It was really, really amazing. And, and I'm a, you know, a huge admirer of Tommy Hearns as well. And I think that fight spoke well for both men. And, uh, and for Hagler, it was, you know, it ended up being a, a watermark, watershed moment for him. In the, in the first few minutes of those eight minutes, it looked like Hearns might win on an early knockout. And then Hagler got cut, if I recall. And he saw his own well, blood, and when, when he got cut, that, that might have been the best cut he ever got. It kind of prompted him to take action. Well, uh, Hearns landed a really big right hand at the beginning of the fight that Hagler admitted was one of the best punches he'd ever been hit with. It also slightly damaged uh, Hearns' right hand a little bit, which uh. impacted him for the rest of the fight. And... And Marvin said he realized then, holy cow, I'm going to, you know, this is, I've got to get to work. For the first maybe minute or minute and a half or whatever, you know, there was, Burns was having some good moments. Then they had a pitch battle for the rest of the round. And ultimately that cut that you talk about, uh, you know, developed. And Hagler realized that he had to get to work because the doctor had checked the cut. And he, Marvin had the feeling that fight might be stopped, right. and he couldn't risk that. Right. And then he really went after Tommy Hearns in the third round. Incredible stuff. Al, the circus of the Leonard fight, Leonard and Hagler. I think for as interesting as the match was, and you and I will talk about it, I know that you feel strongly about the decision. 
you could probably write a series of books on the years leading up to the fight, April 6, 1987. Was it going to happen? Was it not going to happen? The detached retina, the crazy press conference where Ray retired and Hagler was sitting there. Uh, it was more Hollywood than any movie script, Al. Yeah, it was a very circuitous route to that to that moment. And it's funny, I'm sitting here. I just received a book in the mail called The Super Fight by Brian Dugan, who's a good writer. And it's all about just that fight, the Hagler-Leonard fight. I haven't read it yet. But, you know, the route was circuitous to that fight. It was one in which, interestingly, at the end of the day, Marvin Hagler won the battle before the fight. He won the battle financially before the fight. He got the lion's share of the money and made a lot more money than Ray Leonard for that fight. But he gave up certain things like ring size, glove size, and some other things right. that ultimately hurt him inside the, the ring. And that is part of the reason why it was such you know, a, a, a very competitive fight. So the two men finally get in the ring, Al. We all flock to closed circuit locations, and Leonard wins a split decision that continues to be debated even to this day. I know you think Marvin won. It really comes down to how you look at a fight, how you score a fight, quality versus quantity. Yeah, you know, what happened in this fight, and it's, it was a very close fight, so while I believe Hagler won, it was only by a round or two, and if it's, you know, one round, that makes it a, you know, a two-point fight. Sure, uh, sure. So, and one of the judges, Lou DeFilippo, I believe it was, had it for Hagler, and then another judge had it that same way for, for, for Leonard. The outlier was Jojo Guerra, who, of course, amazingly had a 118-111 card for Leonard, which was, you know, absurd. But Hagler did one strategic thing that hurt him in his fight. He fought the first three rounds as a right-hander, almost exclusively. And that was kind of an odd move on his part. He, was, he had switched in the past and been a right-hander, but it wasn't something that he'd ever done for that long a period of time in a fight. And I think that really took away one of his advantages. And, and also, I think in his mind, he thought... I can really humiliate Ray Leonard by outboxing the boxer. And I think that he realized as the fight started to wear on that that was probably not the best strategy. And then he turned lefty, started to be more of an attacker. And the reason that I kind of think Hagler won the fight is if you're the boxer in the fight, you should win the battle of the jabs. Ray Leonard lost the battle of the jabs, according to CompuBox, statistically. And so that's why I think at the end of the day, while, we, while Ray Leonard may have exceeded expectations of what people thought he was going to be able to, capable of doing in this fight because he had had the layoff, he hadn't had a really solid performance in a long time, and most people didn't give him that much of a chance. While he did exceed his expectations, I thought he fell just short. But it was certainly a competitive fight and uh, a very close one. And, you know, Marvin Hagler, who had... Before this, had that amazing fight with uh, John Mugabe, right. which was, right. you know, a staggeringly good fight, but one in which Hagler took some punishment. And Marvin Hagler was older, certainly, than than the actual age that was given. So he was at the point in his career where, where he was ready to... Um, call it a quits and it was a it was a close fight but to call it quits well you know the sport better than anybody the fact that they didn't fight again 
with all the money that could have been made by so many people, the fact that Hagler, I guess, right. never put on a boxing glove again after that fight, and then he kind of disappeared. He even left the country. I think he lived in Italy for a while. Yeah, he went to Italy. He did live in Italy for a long time. Did yeah. some movies over there, yeah. uh, action movies. And uh, he, it speaks, one of the many things about Marvin Hagler that makes him unique is that very few boxers, just like very few athletes and very few entertainers who retire, stay retired. And certainly a lot of boxers don't stay retired. Most don't. Marvin Hagler did. And, and, and Leonard couldn't lure him back. He felt, I won, in his mind, he won the fight. And he thought, you know, he knew also, I think, that at that juncture, he wasn't at the top of his game. And it was the right time for him to move on from the sport. And he was at peace with himself. And uh, he, he had a love affair with the, the uh, country of Italy and uh, moved there and was, you know, a happy man. Would his legacy, Al, have been any different or be any different had he won that fight or is it the same? I don't think it materially changes it. You know, it's a close fight that somebody gave to the other guy. And I just don't think everyone knows who's right at the end. And uh, I don't think it really changes his his legacy dramatically. Uh, I, I just don't. I think no matter how you look at it, Marvin Hagler is one of the two or three best middleweights that ever lived. He's one of the best fighters that ever lived. And his accomplishments were, you know, extraordinary. So I think it still puts him in the same position that he was in before. As I started, you know, the the 80s, just the greatness of the era of that that decade, the 80s of boxing, unbelievable. And I know my second to last question, I want to end with unplugged, but my second to last question is going to be what happened to the sport. It's probably too complex to do the conversation justice here. Maybe we need to have a special edition of Al Bernstein unplugged on the topic. But in, in general terms, Al, from like 1990 to today, what happened? Where did it? Well, where, did, where, did, where did it take a turn for the worse in your estimate? Well, here's the thing: the 80s was the best decade boxing's ever had, ever. E V E R. And and Gil Clancy had breakfast with me about 1985, the great trainer, manager, and broadcaster. And I asked him, I said, you've seen, you know, many decades before this. Uh, did any, and I'm new to this, uh, do, where does this decade stack up? And he said, this is as good as it's ever been or better uh, than it's ever been. So the 80s were a tough act to follow. Part of the 90s were, were still good for boxing. Several things happened. One, in the 90s, boxing started to not make all the good matches it should make. And then something else happened. The media stopped covering boxing around 2000. The mainstream media, mainstream sports media, started to not cover boxing. And that was the main problem. Forget anything else. Even though the sport had, had, had in some ways, so maybe, you know, you can, they still had stars like Roy Jones Jr. and Tyson and others. But, and there's still great fights being made, you know, the, in, the, in the early 2000s. You know, Pacquiao, Barrera, Morales, uh, and uh, Marquez, those four great fighters were fighting phenomenal fights against each other but boxing went number one it's the, the media stopped covering number two boxing was no longer on free tv and those things combined started to make the sport more of a niche sport and as it became more of a niche sport it just kind of became a spiral now having said that 
the sport, I think, has had uh, uh, something of a renaissance in the last five or six years. I think it's it's stabilized. It always it's kind of stabilized its position, as you know. Other than the NFL, everything's a niche sport now to some degree, and I think boxing kind of stabilized its position. Plus, it's back on over-the-air television. It's on Fox. There have been other fights on, and uh, ESPN has had a tremendously renewed boxing program. And even though I'm part of the premium boxing scene as a, you know as the showtime the showtime show, one of the things that kind of was difficult for boxing was so many of the great fights were on the premium channels, and not everybody got to see them. Now I think they are seeing uh, boxing again, and uh, and the coverage has been a little better. Which brings us to Al Bernstein unplugged. Tell us about it as we renew our interest in the sport. Where do we watch it? What do we see? What do we get? To, do we get to see Al Bernstein sing at all on Uncut? <laughs> no, very, no, there has been no music yet on this show, okay. so we'll, we'll work on that. Okay. We'll, do some, we'll do some song parodies. Okay. Um, yeah, no, Al Bernstein Unplugged started out as a spy podcast. Uh, I got kind of talked into doing a podcast, which I haven't done during the the. Um, Really, during the pandemic, when things were kind of shut down, people said, you got to do this because, you know, we the right time to, to do something that people can wrap their head around and have. We need more content for people to see. So I did. I started doing it, and we interview all the top. I, uh, I take questions from fans that uh, get to me on Twitter, at Al Bernstein, and I interview top-name guests. You know, we've had all the great boxing personalities on, uh, great champions like Lennox Lewis. We just did Larry Holmes this week. Um, Tiafimo Lopez from today's, uh, Sean Porter, you know, great fighters from today. And, and many media, great media people uh, from the sport of boxing. But it started out as a podcast, and then somebody said, well, we should syndicate this. And now it's not about nine TV networks around the United nice. States, including Fight TV, great. Fight Network, um, U2 America, Eleven Sports, a whole bunch of them, and it's been fun. You know, we're we're, we're having a good time with it. And this, uh, two weeks ago, I I had uh, uh, I had a fascinating interview with Snoop Dogg, who uh, is putting that. out a he's doing a um, uh, a boxing series called Fight Club, which starts on April 17th. So I'm having fun doing the show. People can also see it on YouTube, and they can also hear it on all the major podcast places. How often do you do it? Oh, uh, once a week. Okay. We do it once a week, and uh, it uh, it's really fun. As I said, the current episode has Larry Holmes on it, and um, it's been uh, it's been interesting. You know, I've had a good time, and it's been fun. One of the things I did, haven't gotten to do in recent years uh, with Showtime is I was used to interviewing people all the time, interviewing the fighters after every fight and uh, when I did the, all the years on ESPN. Uh, and I don't do that at Showtime, so I haven't really been interviewing people as much because I, I had a you know radio show for a number of years on the ESPN affiliate in Las Vegas, so that was fun. I got to scratch that itch of interviewing there, but I haven't done it since. And so it's been fun to have a chance to do some interviews with well-known people. Well, you know how much I've admired you over the years. We we go back a long time. And yeah, we, oh, God, we started doing stuff together a long time ago. <laughs> Al, it's great to visit with you again. It's called Al Bernstein Unplugged. You can find it anywhere. He's really become the voice and face of boxing, and I love him dearly. Thank you, Al. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thanks, Mitch. Hey, hey, another chance to visit with my man Jordan Flowers of the Kirkland office of Gill Mortgage. How are we doing, Jordan? We're doing great, Mitch. Thank you, and thanks for having me back on. It's great to have a great partner on 
interest rates spike a little bit from where we were for the longest time, especially during the pandemic? Did all of us who hesitated to buy or refinance, did we blow it, Jordan? You definitely haven't blown it. And anybody out there, the rates are still at historic lows. There has been a little tick up, but there's still phenomenal time to look at refinancing or purchasing that new home. Where exactly does that leave all of us that are selling or buying a house? Tis the season. Tis the season. It's the spring season. Historically, that time of year, everybody's getting their homes ready to sell. Our buyers out there already looking on the market. It kind of hit a little earlier this year. Extremely competitive environment. Homes are appreciating and selling for 10, 20, even some 30% over list. And so it leaves a lot of sellers right now wondering, well, if we sell, where do we go? Uh, We do have solutions and programs to help people buy a new home, non-contingent, and still use the equity of their departing residents. We're helping people win there, sellers win there, so they can buy that new home before they uh, list and sell their house. And we're helping first-time home buyers in this incredibly challenging environment and then winning offers still five ten percent over so there's lots of areas where jordan and his team at the kirkland office of guild mortgage can help you not just strictly mortgages where would they call where would they phone would they go to you directly or somewhere else they can reach me on my office line 425-250-3145 or on my cell phone at 425-890-2957. The Kirkland Office of Gill Mortgage, great partners, Jordan Flowers and his team of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. All right, episode 134, episode 134, no hot shot, and instead Dylan Shobe has been kind enough to accept my invitation. He invited me on his podcast into his high school. And I know your teacher, right? Somehow, some way. Yes, you do. Joe yeah. Bryant. I oh. didn't tell him that you said hi yet, but uh, <laughs> I got I to gotta do that because I, I didn't tell him in class. So 15-year-old Dylan Schaub uh, a couple of weeks ago reached out to me. I, I found out later that I was his 10th pick, but he reached out to me to, uh, to join him on his podcast and in a project that he was doing for his class. And I thought, hey, let's return the favor. If he's going to invite me, I'll invite him to be my special celebrity co-host with Hotshot Scott away in Idaho somewhere doing youth mm-hmm. basketball. Have you had fun so far? Yes, I have. And I'd actually like to apologize for one more thing with that interview. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny. And I hated thinking about it but going to sleep. What? Uh, okay. So, you know, at the beginning of the interview, well, not beginning, but at before the interview, I was like, it's Levy, not Levy, right? <laughs> and you said Levy, of course. And then I hit record. Yeah. And guess what I say? Today I'm sitting down with said. Mitch Levy. And I and I was like thinking, listening to it in retrospect while editing, like, what did his face look like when I said that? Because this is the guy, this is the 15-year-old that, that, that invited you to, you know, do an interview. Uh, he clarifies with you and then he goes and messes it, it up. So, so fine. In the heat of the moment. It moment, was totally, yeah. it was totally fine i've had some real bad blunders and mess ups over the years you're gonna if you if you go into this thing if you go into this broadcast thing which i don't know i think you're too smart for broadcasting but if you go into this broadcast thing you're gonna have a lot of hiccups along the way so get get used to it you're allowed to mispronounce people's names and you're allowed to make i'll I'll, I'll give you one you want to hear one of my foul ups one of my blunders okay think think about this for a second Many, many years ago, there was a golf tournament, a, a, very, a very famous golf tournament. The PGA Championship came to Sahali here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm a big golf fan. And we decided to do my radio show at the event. 
the morning show that I was doing, we decided to do it from Sahali. And CBS had a whole bunch of broadcasters here because they were broadcasting the PGA Championship from Sahali. And we as a show decided that we wanted to ask Jim Nance, you know that name, or one of the golf commentators on CBS to come sit with me and do a segment with me on our radio show from Sahali. Well, one of the commentators' names was Sean McDonough. And the interesting thing about Sean McDonough is he went to Syracuse too. He's a little older than me. He had gone there before I did. But I knew Sean McDonough very well. I very much respected Sean McDonough. He's an incredible, incredible sportscaster. And he was here for the event in Sahali. But I had told my producer who was back in the studio that we didn't want Sean McDonough because he's not really a golf guy. We wanted one of the golf commentators, even though he was here doing the broadcast. So if you can picture this, my producer who's back in the studio and I'm on location at Sahali, he goes ahead and books Sean McDonough anyway. (laughs) So Sean McDonough comes to the set and he puts the headsets on just before we are about to go on the air at which time it gets back to my producer that I didn't want Sean McDonough so now picture this he's got his headsets on I'm sitting next to him we're about to go on and I know him for years and years and years respect him greatly and the producer without seeing me and knowing that Sean McDonough has the headsets on says in both of our headsets Why don't you like Sean McDonough? Why don't you want Sean McDonough on the show? (laughs) And Sean McDonough is sitting right there listening to that. Oh, yikes. That's tough. Not a very comforting feeling. Now, he didn't understand that it was nothing against him. It was just that I wanted one of the golf guys on. But yeah, he's listening to but this. the producer like oh, threw you God. under the bus. But exactly. he did, he, and the producer didn't realize that Sean McDonough was on a headset listening to everything he said. So yeah. it was it was the most humiliating, one of the most humiliating career situations for me. And yet, you know what Sean McDonough did? He put the he took the headsets off and he said something like, I don't think I should be listening to this right now. And then he puts the headsets on. He went on. He did the show. We did the show as if nothing ever happened. He oh, was yeah. he was the ultimate professional. And you know what he knew? He realized, Dylan, he realized that this was a mistake, a mistake in communication. People make mistakes. And he looked beyond it, just like mispronouncing your guest's name but i expected you i expected you to mispronounce my name because you had already told me that i was your 10th or 12th selection for the show so it didn't matter (laughs) (laughs) so where do you want to go in this segment no yeah that actually is great i'd like you to tell me another story um like do you have a story or a very valuable thing someone has said to you that has stuck with you till this day Ooh. that sort of like formed you into a better person? And I know this is a very tough question. A like better broadcaster back, or a better person? Anything. Like, uh, I'm just I looking would... for something I could take from you uh, yeah. that you've that somebody's that's moved well, you. Well, I, a lot of people have moved me. I think my dad moved me the most. He's not with us anymore. I think... Um, People in the broadcast field, there are so many. I don't even want to name names because I would be leaving people out. But mm-hmm. in terms of interviewing, if you want an interview tip, the best tip that I can give you that's always been given to me about interviewing is the great interviewers actually listen. 
It's a weird thing. There are a lot of interviewers, Dylan, who while the interviewee is answering a question, they're thinking about what their next question is. And they're reading their notes and, and getting in their mind, formulating what I'm going to ask them next. They're not actually listening to what the person is saying. And so much good stuff can come from reaction to what the people say. So I would say my number one tip for interviewing people, whether it's a cyclist or a sports radio talk show host or whomever, is listen to their answers. Listen to what they say because they might say something that's super interesting that you want to continue to dive into. Does that make any kind of sense? No, I've heard that before exactly. Is that that's... Funny, funny. I say this. That's exactly what Joe has taught us to do in our interviews. Ah, is like the, the best thing is to like the best questions that you ask or the best information you're going to receive are from listening and responding from what they've said. So, I, I appreciate to know that that's reassured by you as something that's very valuable in interviewing. And then the second thing I would say to you, if it's just as a talk show host, but not as an interviewer, just as a talk, if you ever get a chance to host your own daily show or if you ever want to do that i don't know if you ever want to do that be genuine be yourself don't be afraid to be yourself and to show your true emotions there are a lot of people in this business who feel like they've got to have every answer and they've got to be somebody that they're not you can show your emotions you can show your sensibilities if you're angry about something let the audience know they want to hear it If you're sad about something, I have been sad about a million different... I was on the air during 9-11, Dylan. When everything was happening around us, I was on the air trying trying to express what was happening and share emotions. People want a genuine voice. They don't want somebody who's trying to be something that they're not. Never worry about saying, I don't know the answer to that question. You don't have to know everything. And I, I think that will resonate because nobody in the audience knows everything. Just that authenticity will shine through and make you a better host, if that makes any kind of sense. It does. Thank you. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. What else you want to talk about? This is your All segment. Right. Your, let's your let's segment. switch to fun. Let's okay. switch to yeah. fun. Yeah. All right. So I, I was kind of low on topics. I asked my mom. Uh, <laughs> about what I what I should do for this last segment. So um, uh, uh, this one's very fun, and she actually came up with a great one. Okay. Um, what ballpark food do you miss the most? Oh, are you a baseball fan? Well, yeah, I do like going to games. I'm not – I don't follow, like, the Mariners like I do football, obviously, but – well, not obviously, oh. but yeah, I just, so I just mom don't, wants I, to I know. love going to baseball games. I really do. The whole Ooh. experience is okay, awesome. Okay, you start. What do you, what do you like? What, what's the first purchase for Dylan Show? I mean, Chubb? there's so much good stuff at um, – I'll call it Safeco just because I'm OG, even though I'm not, I'm 15, but, um, my dad will get on me for this, but like, I, I miss the garlic fries. I mean, they're good, but my dad is like, Oh, there's so much better stuff. There's that Mexican place. (laughs) So like, yeah, I get made up, made fun of for the garlic fries, but that, that'll be something I remember for a while. Is it terrible that I'm just a ballpark Frank guy? And uh, I just li- I like a nice hot dog. I like a, n- a nice baseball. That's not hot dog. bad. That's classic. I, I mean, don't know. I, classy that's guy. I, that's what I like. I like I like hot dogs. I like uh, peanuts. I like cracker jacks. I mean, you're just I, I am the seventh inning classic. stretch. <laughs> I am the seventh <laughs> inning stretch. I don't know. I I, I don't Can't I don't go wrong. I don't go for all the. 
the garlic fries and the, the, oh, you the fancy stuff. No, man, no, the, the garlic fries. Boy, the, the odor awesome. of the odor. You smell the garlic fries like five blocks away. Exactly. From the Safeco Field, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously like everywhere. There's like the. Uh, um, salted caramel popcorn and like stuff like that that never gets old really you know while but, you're on the mariners dylan are you following their spring training at all this guy ty france who's the guy that they acquired from the san diego padres he hit his fifth homer the other day he's hitting over 400 and then this guy jared kelnick who, who we've talked about a lot he's almost your age for god's sakes a little older <laughs> than you um, this prospect who got hurt a few weeks ago, he came back and had two hits in his first game back the other day. So he might still be, he might still be somebody that they would put on the opening day roster. I just wanted to throw a few sports facts in there as you're talking about your food in Safeco Field. Yeah, I do not know that actually for the Mariners, <laughs> it's okay. but it's all right. Um, I do. Isn't it Kyle Lewis? Maybe yeah. like rookie really of the year last rookie, year. right? R- rookie of the year last year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah second that's, year guy. That's, that's, all, that's as far as I go, Mariners. That's as far as you go. How about LeBron James? Are you an NBA guy? Do you watch any basketball? <sighs> no, dude. No. I mean, I'll watch NBA playoffs, oh, and I'm gonna do this that this year from like the the first few games obviously to the final but i did watch the final game uh, i thought the heat were going to win it but it it kind of didn't make sense more if you thought about it more like oh the lakers that whole season and we're just dominating and it made sense with the whole uh do it for kobe thing so it was good that the lakers won i i appreciated that and lebron you know that's a fun question as well uh, this is i probably know the answer but jordan or lebron who is who is the who's gonna be or obviously because lebron is still in his career but yeah. greatest of all time debate and who you do you think i would say jordan i think you would yes i would yes yes exactly anybody who remembers jordan well i should say anybody because there are a lot of people that are on the uh, lebron james bandwagon but i think it's um for me jordan just was everything when i was when i was watching him play when he was in his prime i couldn't imagine that there could be anybody in the past better than him and i couldn't imagine that there would be anybody in the future better than him so i'm a, i'm a michael jordan guy i think everybody else is fighting for second place yeah, including exactly. lebron james yeah if i ask any relative on like you know my mom's side or my dad's side but yeah. mostly my mom's side because they all grew up in chicago during that whole time and my parents are around your age so they're big on jordan you know no question big chicago sports fans they're white white Sox fans as well uh so there's a little bit of a divide in the family as well as you as you get lower in the the family tree (laughs) but uh yeah i'm not huge on the nba but no i'll give it a watch a few times my dad no he's like no, I'm not going to watch the NBA. I just, I just because, don't find the interest in it. How yeah. about if this? So, what would, would if Seattle had a basketball team? I, w- I think if it was here from like the start of my childhood and I started watching it all the time, I think I would be more into the NBA than I uh, am yeah. now. Yeah, it, for sure. I think that's my prediction. But it's, I think it makes a big difference if uh, there's an NBA team. It will be back. Know, the culture is a little bit different. It will be back. It, I N- hope so. The NBA will be back, I, and it'll be interesting to see whether guys like you, who never experienced Seattle with an NBA team, will yeah. get excited about. It. Are you excited for hockey? The oh, NHL? I am. You are. I love watching hockey. Oh, it's you actually, do. It's my. Th- I'm. I think it's tied for a third favorite sport to watch. Yeah. 
Because, you know, I got football, I got lacrosse, and that's my next topic, but football, lacrosse, oh, and then... Going back to lacrosse? Uh, Are you yes, really taking me back I've, to lacrosse? No, I want to... I have a very interesting <laughs> thing to ask you is, have you heard of the PLL? PLL what is that? The, the Premier Pre- Lacrosse League. Yeah, the professional league, yeah. 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 Have you, have you watched it at all? No, absolutely Ever? not. No. You I, got it, dude. It's so exciting. There's eight teams. There's uh, three drafts this uh, offseason. There's an entry draft for the guys. You know, they just did a merger with Major League Lacrosse. Oh, I think so I'm they, talking about Major League Lacrosse. I don't think I'm talking about... What's the PLL? Oh, I don't know the difference. The PLL is a new league that started in 2018 by oh. uh, Paul Rabel, who's debated as the greatest of all time, but he, he kind of sucked this past year. He had like one goal in the championship series, which was their little bubble event. But uh, it started in 2018, uh, founded by him and his uncle, Mike Rabel. And uh, the whole goal was to like get that league to um, pay professional lacrosse players way more in their salary than other leagues. And, you know, represent them better than the MLL because the MLL has, has a few like kinks that people didn't really like. Yeah, they just basically what the NFL, I think it was NFL, AFL or whatever when they merged. It's basically what the um, PLL is doing with the MLL. Got so it. you probably know about Major League Lacrosse. I you do. Know, they got the Denver Outlaws. Sure. I don't know. Where uh, do New you York watch Lizards. this stuff? You watch this stuff online or do you watch it on the TV? There was a NBC Gold subscription, but the some of the playoff <laughs> games and the championship uh, series were just on NBC. Now, hold like on a second, Dylan. Are you good enough? I mean, you're still only 15. Are you going to be good enough to play college lacrosse? That is my goal. I'm trying to make college D1 team. I, I mean, really? I'd even go to Syracuse. I oh, totally. you got to be. T- I mean, you got to be really good I know, to come I'm, to our place. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, that, so that's play, another one of my goals right now. Do you play so, yeah. select lacrosse? Do you play off-season lacrosse? Yeah. Last year I was on the select team, but obviously high school you jump into a whole another level of like talent. So yeah. right now I'm practicing with all grade levels, but um. My hope is to make varsity uh, either freshman or sophomore sophomore year, and then just continue and try to see where I can go. I mean, I can't predict anything now, but yeah, that's another one of my dreams, pretty much. Really, to play college mm-hmm. lacrosse? That's yes. interesting. Did your siblings? I would love did, that. did your? You're the youngest. Your older siblings play lacrosse or any other sports? Uh, my middle brother, older, not oldest, uh, mm-hmm. Ryan, who goes to Purdue. Uh, he played lacrosse. He wasn't as good as it as I am. I'll say that. But uh, sorry, Ryan, if you're listening, I know you will be. Maybe, uh, but uh, hopefully, because that's your whole goal, Mitch, just to get my whole family to listen. Which it, I will t- work on it. Yeah, I got you. But you played lacrosse for like I don't know six years, five years, something around there. And then my oldest brother. He didn't really ever get into it, and when he tried, of course, he gave it a shot. Uh, he did a summer camp, and he just wasn't into it. So, I'm the most into it for sure out of all of them, and I'd say I am like the most sporty, athletic out of all of them. Very nice. So very yeah. nice. All right, uh, what else do you, do you have? Anything else on your list before I ask you now who you think is going to win the NCAA tournament? If you could do a new bracket oh, now. Having seen, would you do Gonzaga? Everybody's done Gonzaga. And I just don't want Gonzaga to win. I don't, I don't li- want him to win. I don't either, want Gonzaga to win. I don't like the coach. I'm, an- I'm anti Gonzaga. Oh. If you were going to do a new, a yeah, new bracket right, right now, yeah, what would you do as we I, record this? Mm. You would do Gonzaga, wouldn't you? You no, have to. No. There's no. <laughs> I think they're going to get upset. It's the. It's the. There already been so many upsets. I mean, Oral Roberts, that screwed everybody from the start. Right. I think there's going to be more screw-ups. Okay. Um, right now, oh, this is so tough. Uh, say Iowa. Say Iowa. Just say Iowa. 
I'm gonna go with Iowa. Why not? Why not? Luca Garza. Uh, Luca Garza. Why not? That ladies guy's and, monster. Ladies and gentlemen, what a great pleasure it is. What a great privilege it is for me to have such a nice young guy, Dylan Show, Mercer Island High School freshman who wants to get into the broadcast thing. He wants to play some college lacrosse. Got a great personality. Really, really bright. Way too bright to be. You know, all the dumb guys go into this. You're too smart for this. So. I wish you all the very best, whatever you decided. you got a long way to go. Enjoy high school. I'm assuming you're doing high school from home, right? You're not, start, you're not on campus. I go into the building for the first time this year on Monday, tomorrow. Oh. Yep. Hybrid. Are you are you excited about that? Yes. I'm. Yeah, I'm a little bit excited. Yeah. Well, good yeah. luck to you. Have a Thank great you. have a great rest of your freshman year and a great high school career. And come back and be with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Okay. Yes. Anytime. All right. Thank you so much, Mitch. Episode 134 with Dylan Shobe as my celebrity co-host is now in the books.